bog like hags, <laughs> and you thought water bag was bad. No, but like that's what they're called. That's actually what they're called. Yeah. Uh, it's still pretty mean, though. Pretty I mean, bad. no wonder they were pissed off the whole time. Yeah, they were like, well, bog hags. That's what you're calling us. <laughs> yeah, well, I will drink your blood, steal your children, you jerks. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're talking about The Colour of Magic. The answer is Octarine, they tell you within three pages. And our guest is writer, editor and podcaster Joel Martin. Welcome Joel. Hi Ben, hi Liz, good to be here. We're so glad to have you. Look, we I, I feel like in a strange way that I manufactured a guest for the podcast because, <laughs> look, I, we can cut to the chase a little yes. bit. It's my fault that you've read Terry Pratchett, isn't it? A little bit, yes. You came on to my podcast. The Morning you, Bell. Yeah, you snuck your way onto The Morning Bell somehow. I don't know um, it was It was interesting. And it was that day that you, you went to the science... They don't even have a... Um, fantasy section at uh, at the Brunswick Street Books, so they have a science fiction slash nothingness section. <laughs> yeah, void is, is what you want in yeah. the science fiction slash yeah. void section. Uh, slash void <laughs> section, yeah. So there was one Terry Pratchett book, I think, there. I think there was Dodger, and then there was this, The Color of Magic. Yeah. And then you pointed it out to me, and I said, oh, should I start with The Color of Magic? And you were like, Liz might be upset, but yes. Yeah, you well, start. see, but that was a personal recommendation for you because I knew that you are an old school fantasy yeah, fan. Yeah, big so sword I, and sorcery. Very much your kind of bag. Whereas, and, and, and look, you know, also, as listeners of the podcast will know, I started with The Color of Magic. Um, the, the, the shorthand story version of the story is I ran out of Douglas Adams books and my mum went into a bookstore and asked them, what should I get for my son? He loves Douglas Adams and there's no more. Uh, and they said, try this. And <laughs> so she bought the first one, uh, which was you know, well, the first Discworld one anyway. Uh, and I read that first and I, and I, look, I, it has a very special place in my heart as much yes. as, um, as we will, I'm sure discuss, uh, it has many differences from the rest of the Pratchett canon. You know, if a book literally was in your heart, it'd probably be one of the valves because it's the most similar shape. <laughs> you, uh, we need to do a spin-off anatomy podcast. <laughs> a little bit. I feel. Oh, there's some good anatomy in this book as well. Um, they yeah. had some really good stuff about eye anatomy, so we'll yes. get into that. Mm, yes. Yeah, that's true. Okay, this is going to be... All right, look, I'm, I'm really looking forward... I feel like we should just get into it because a lot of people have been waiting for us to do this book. Can't think why. Uh, well, because it's the first one, Liz. Yeah. Also, I did actually really enjoy it on the reread. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And so did I. And Joel, you, this is your second time you've read it for the podcast. Yes, that's right. So I read it when I bought the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read it again, I think a week ago. And I also listened to the abridged, um, audiobook with oh, yeah. uh, Tony yeah. Robinson who did the recording. Now, I never knew it was abridged. What do they cut out? Lots of stuff. Like yeah. half the book. It's only like three hours long. All huh. the Tony Robinson ones were abridged because originally they were released on two cassettes, so you couldn't fit 
a whole book on I two cassettes. See. It's yeah. not because he was too busy doing time team. I was just about no. to say because I <laughs> love time team. Well, yeah. I think I think the first ones probably predate time team but then i'm not sure how long time team's been going yeah, see, a while. i watched time team before black adder so i was always yes. like oh the guy from time teams on yeah. black adder yep. that's right yes <laughs> that was the same and i am equally appalled no yeah. that's fine it's good um did you go on and read any other terry pratchett's job no so what i wanted to do was to come on this one completely without like zero knowledge of the entire franchise so okay. it, i would seem as ignorant as possible about the canon <laughs> oh you're a control group yeah it's okay, good that's right it's proper science or um or what is it? The not quite right magic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm hoping to take away from this and maybe get Liz to recommend me the second book that I should read. I mean, and if that you're could be sequentially or mm. yeah, okay, I'll give it a think across the episode. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think that's appropriate. I mean, I I was responsible for your first one, so it seems only right that Liz picks your second. Absolutely. One. Um, if you're not going to pick it yourself, <laughs> no, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, now, the other thing that I should say, the reason that we're talking about it this month is um, as we record this, it is just a few days past the 35th anniversary of the publication of The Color of Magic. So the Discworld is 35 years old um, this year, which is, you know, an exciting time. It's it's nice to be reading a, a venerable fantasy series that is nonetheless slightly younger than me. Um, we don't often think about how long ago the books were written. And a lot of the ones we've been reading, you know, they were written a good uh, 10 to 15 years after this. I feel like it's a weird passage of time thing because I always think of these books as simultaneously really recent and having always been around. Yeah. So, like, I'm aware of them having been written in the 80s and 90s, but I'm yep. also like, oh, I remember going to the shop and the new Discworld book came out. So it's a strange passage of time. And just last night I was thinking about how this works because like i think of the 70s as very recently but now mm. i realize that we are as far from the 70s as the 70s were from the 20s which yeah. is ridiculous yeah oh. it yeah it's the exact same <laughs> feeling like i i went into bookshops and i saw terry pratchett and i my my family were not big readers so they never sent me to the terry pratchett like cool section of like oh these are the books that were coming out they went to the canon of english literature so i read all of that and ended up incredibly pretentious as a result of that so i read pratchett quite late because of ben but yeah it's weird to think that in one way pratchett now is in that canon of fantasy right mm. like 30, yeah. 35 plus years well, is a I mean, long time you know and he i think he he talked about he didn't talk about it a lot but he did talk about it sometimes that you know he felt that there was a clear you know he, he didn't get picked out as a you know he never won any major literary awards or anything yeah. like that because he was writing both comedy and fantasy, he was like doing the two things that yep, people would never get the most. an award. Yes, um, doesn't matter if you are smart if you don't use the big smart words. Well, he does use the big smart words. He does. It's just, yeah, he also just, invents a few. He was just in a category that is just looked down upon, which is yes. very demoralizing. Yeah, and he's doing all his big smart stuff next to some really silly fun stuff as well. Yeah. Which I, 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 yeah. Anyway, I think that's all going to come out. Although the last thing I'll say about the book and the age of the book is that I know that I first read it in about, uh, would have been about 1993, um, because it was before I briefly lived in, in Perth. So I went to a boarding school in Perth very briefly. Mm. And I remember getting in, in the English literature class saying, I know what will impress these guys. And I'm like, so <laughs> there's this great author. I don't know if you know about him. He's called Terry Pratchett. And everyone there went, uh, because he'd been at a literary yeah. festival in Perth the year before and they'd all oh, been wow. forced to go and listen to him and then and they hated it because of that. And I was like, what? How and I'd lucky. never met him because yeah. I, that was the first time I ever lived in a city. So I'd mm. never been anywhere where he'd, he'd signed books before. So I was like, oh. So I know I read, I, I at least read the first one, no later than, than 93. But this copy, which I always thought of was my original copy, is a 96 edition. So it can't be my first copy of the book that I first read. Right. So I must have replaced it at yeah. some point 
fairly early on um, would have been while I was working at a bookshop in my first job. So I, I don't know. I don't understand. Um, but what are you, what are you going to do? So what about the editions of the book? So the, the cover art, just very curiously. So again, knowing nothing about these books. Yeah. I, I don't know what the cover art is telling me. Is that, is that just me? Well, the, the, the artist, we've talked a lot about him right. on, on the podcast. It's Josh Kirby, who's mm-hmm. a, who's a, was a very prolific fantasy uh, artist, did a lot of book covers, um, and did all of the Pratchett covers, uh, not just Discworld books, but his other books too, or nearly all of them, um, right up until his death. And this was the first Discworld one that he did. So it's, it's very interesting. One of the, we'll come back to this, but even on my edition of the book, I think that it might be different on yours. I'm not sure. Um, cause you can't even see Two Flower on the cover of the book, but. On mine, um, there is a, a depiction of Two Flower, and he is actually drawn literally with four eyes. Um, wow. Because he's a nerd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I was reading about this, and because and, you know, in the book, as we'll get to, he's described as, as having four eyes, which is clearly meant to be an allusion to the fact that he's wearing glasses, glasses. and no one on the Discworld knows yep. what those are, yep. or at least no one in Ankh-Morpork at this stage of the narrative. Um, but... Uh, there's two camps online where, where the, the Kidby fans are like, this is his I- incredible imaginative interpretation of the text. Yeah. And other people are like, this is evidence that he really doesn't read it very he closely at yeah. all. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. You could go either way, I suppose. But it's a weird, it is a weird choice. Yeah. And, and also, he's very small on the cover, so you have to kind of squint to see, which seems appropriate considering that we're talking about whether or not he's got four eyes. And lumpy. Everything is lumpy. Oh, yeah. That's a real is hallmark of, of Kirby art. Kirby, yeah. Um, is, the uh, luggage has got some really muscular legs. I will, you know what? We'll come back to the luggage because I, and, and in fact, a lot of the things on this cover because I have many questions. Uh, really muscular ankles, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah well, they've Yeesh. got to support a lot of weight. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Anyway, uh, look, we should, we should get into the discussion of the Absolutely. book itself. And as is traditional, we'll start with a reading of the blurb. On a world supported on the back of a giant turtle, sex unknown. A gleeful, explosive, wickedly eccentric expedition sets out. There's an avaricious but inept wizard, a naive tourist whose luggage moves on hundreds of dear little legs, dragons who only exist if you believe in them, and, of course, the edge of the planet. Uh, and the edge, I should say, is in all caps. Um, it's not in title case, so it, it is not referring to the guitarist from U2. <laughs> um, which would be weird, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> So one of, the, one of the unique things about the book is unlike most of Pratchett's other work and unlike most, certainly most of the Discworld, this book is broken up into parts. Mm. Um, or, well, they're not, and they're not really chapters. They're just sort of separate books, I guess. They're kind of like pyramids, which we covered in episode five. Um, and two of them have a prologue. Uh, and the first one has the same name as the whole book, The Color of Magic. Uh, and... In the prologue, this is the first time the Discworld is ever introduced to a reader. But it is so super familiar that I just that just washed over yeah. me. You're not a fan of these cosmic turtle <laughs> entries, are you? Like, I get it. I yeah, get it. It's, it's a, a giant There's turtle. a big turtle and yeah. there's elephants and it's on a disc. Like, I really like the stuff towards the end of the book that described the colors and the... the the water going over the edge really mm. quickly. I, mm. I get it. But I also understand this is the first one. So, like, if you're ever going to go all in on the description of all the stuff, mm. this is the time and the place. I think, you know, it seems that Terry would have had a bit of a, like a Stanley kind of Marvel opinion, which is that he doesn't know which book is going to be somebody's first one. So he's got to have that 
introduction. Right. Okay. But so having, everyone, yeah. But having said that, like, it's really not very relevant to the plot of no. nearly any of the other books. Like, this is one of the very few books where the fact that they're on a flat disc on the back of four elephants on a turtle it's is kind of actually important. important. Plus, he gets to make that big bang joke. Yeah, which is yeah, yeah. Oh, such yes. a good joke. Yeah. Oof, thumbs up. It's just the payoff. Yep. The setup was just good. I remember reading because um, there's two puns there because there's the Big Bang one. So this is this is where we're talking about people's theories about what will happen with the turtle. Um, one of which is that you know he'll find another turtle and mate, and they'll make new world turtles. Um, what will the is, elephants do while they're doing that? Yeah, that's a really awkward getting tanned. time for them. Yeah, and how do they get born? Like, do they do they just come with the turtle? I guess the, they must because the world comes with the turtle. Yeah. So they're part of the turtle. What came first, the turtle or the elephants? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I don't know. Um, maybe the tu- maybe the elephants get it on with the elephants that are on the back of the other turtle at the same uh, time. I figured the turtle, the, the elephants are kind of like Abba, like they're just all like with each other. <laughs> yeah, but they deny it in interviews. Yeah, they just yeah. like, no, we're not here. It's but fine. when they break up, then like everything is yeah. bad. Uh, yeah, that's the end of the disc world. It's not actually anything to do with the turtle. <laughs> <laughs> the elephants are like, it's I can't work elephants. with you guys. One of them meets a fifth elephant. And then, like, it's a whole Yoko Ono situation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who knows? Um, but- they hit song Rim Rim. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's the, that's the Big Bang Theory. But the other one, the, um, where he just keeps swimming forever into nothingness, is called the Steady Gate Theory, which is a pun on the Steady State, state theory, theory of the Universe, which I quite liked as well. So that was good. Although, interestingly, like, they keep talking about how nobody knows the sex of a tune. He's... Repeatedly referred to as a he. He. That's because yeah. of the maleness default. Yeah. Yeah. If he's doing something important, he must be a guy. Yeah. Uh, later on. Literally holding up the world. Yeah. Uh, later on, there's, there is, he's a bit more careful about it. Terry is, I mean, um, in, he's like, says he or she or not in this book, but in later books. Um, yeah. So, which is quite interesting. Yeah. And, and as a first time reader, that was like surprising because he came into it and I was like, okay, uh, the sex of the tale. Wait. It's a dude. He says it's a guy. It's he. And then I didn't understand the point of bringing it up right at the start. Then I thought, oh, okay, maybe this is the Chekhov's gun moment. Am I getting it really early in the book? And that was the, oh, okay, maybe this is actually relevant rather mm. than just a setup for a really killer joke, uh, <laughs> which is fine too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I, I remember reading a thing where uh, people were talking about the challenges of translating Pratchett into other languages because he's you know super popular. He's oh, been translated yeah. into a lot of languages, and consistently one of the hardest things to translate is puns. Yeah. And translating the Big Bang Theory <laughs> as a pun, where I don't, I mean, I who knows? I don't even know how you translate Big Bang as a theory into other languages. Yeah. Whether it is referred to as you know large noise theory or or what, uh, but finding a term that both puns on that and yeah oh just yeah amazing that would do a translator's head in the echo in the spiritual something oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. uh yeah reflected sound of underground spirits (laughs) i just yeah the weird thing is all the jokes not not a single joke in this book was a surprise to me i i was really a lot of the other books we've been rereading um i was like oh i'd forgotten this bit i forgot like i'd forgotten approximately probably 70 to 80 percent of what goes on in pyramids for example like i had no idea but this one just felt very familiar i think i must have read it several times when i first got it no you know what my theory on that is Mm. that it was your first one um and it's kind of like a spell that it lodges in your brain taking up (laughs) the space that other books slash spells might otherwise have lodged Uh in so Uh, i like like that yeah that's Mm. a good theory yeah i'm into it 
I think I think it also it's probably not insignificant that I was reading this. I was not a big fantasy reader at the time because um, you were quite young. I was quite young, but I also I'd been reading a lot more sci-fi and particularly like weird science fantasy stuff, like the big one being Douglas Adams. Mm. And I was always looking for other stuff like him, and there isn't a lot. Like I think, no. but there's some very. And I've said this about some of the other early books. There's some very Adamsy jokes. I mean, the whole having a joke about the Big Bang. That's, I mean, you know, um, mm. in in the original Hitchhikers, um, say for people rocks is described as the best bang since the big one. You know, and you, you're like, that's great. And yeah. this, so this felt very familiar, um, but also very different because like the only fantasy I'd really read was The Hobbit, and I was one of those people who got a third the way through the first book of The Lord of the Rings and was like. Are they going to do anything? Yeah, is something <laughs> good to happen? Yeah. The first one's so good. I know. They have the Tom Bombadil song. Oh, you know when Tom just, Bombadil and Glorfindel yeah, like find yeah. them and yeah, see, I don't them. understand the cultish following that Tom Bombadil has, but that's for a different episode. You mean in I guess. the book or in real life? In real life, there's uh, a cultish following for yeah, Tom everyone Bombadil. Everyone loves Tom. I think it's because of his inclusion exclusion from the movies. Yeah, that everyone doubled down really hard on how good he is. I'm mad that they didn't have the Bath song because I think the Bath song is actually the best part of Lord of the Rings. That's a good controversial point. opinion, but that is no, the I'd, best part I'd agree of. With you, yeah. yeah, I've got a controversial opinion for you. I think the the films are better than the books. Yeah, I said it. That's rude. Can I de- <laughs> can I delist myself from this episode? No, it's fine. It's fine. I, a- look, I'm just not. I'm not a big. I'm not a. I was. This is what I'm saying though. Is that big? Fa- yeah, not I was fantasy. not a big fantasy yeah, person sure. at the time. Since then, I've read a lot more fantasy, and oddly, probably, if I looked at it on balance, more fantasy than sci-fi. Which, given my reading roots, is is a bit weird. But anyway, so that's where I came from to this, and I had no idea about any of the stuff that was being parodied. In this right. book, either okay. I just enjoyed the jokes because I sort of basically understood the the tropes of fantasy fiction from mostly from films and, yep. and stuff. And in fact, I love that in this first section of the book, even he mentions Kroll, and Kroll was one of my favorite movies as yeah. a kid. <laughs> which, if you haven't seen it, it's like the best of the cheap Star Wars ripoff films because yep. it's it's very science fantasy. It blends a lot of there's a lot of sort of weird sci fi stuff in it, but it's also very much draws on Greek mythology actually is a big source of inspiration for Kroll. Yeah. So I, there was a lot about this that was familiar, even though it was brand new to me. I, I think that could, helped. I could not stand Kroll. I was just not a, not a big fan, but I think that's because I like the, yeah, the Lord of the Rings thing. I came to it quite late, but uh, look, that's just the prologue where we find out about what kind of universe this is on a practical kind astro- of level. Zo- zoologists. Astro-psychologists. Psychologists. To find out what they're thinking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, they had astrozoologists as well. Sorry, they had also, yeah. They did, yeah. And Cosmochelonians. That was, <laughs> and Chelonauts, which is what they call them when yeah. they're going. I, I think that, that comes back in The Last Hero, which is a later book in the series where, again, right. they, there's another expedition. Do they also have pachydermatologists? They never they never seem to care much about the elephants in this No. I guess I think- the, maybe the, the turtle is imagining them. Like the dragons. Oh, so, if so that's ever, what he's thinking it helps about. Him if he ever falls waste. asleep, I love it. Then they just the whole disc will come crashing down. Yeah. Oh man, and it'll freeze because it'll yeah. move away from the sun. Mm. I've anyway. solved it. Good work. Yeah, I there like it. Do the elephants actually come into relevance in other books? I mean, they've got names. They do. Well, they get named in this. They book. get named. Yeah. yeah. Um, are you like? How does anyone know? It's, I, I mean, because because you never meet anyone on the disc who has alternate theories about what the turtle is named or what the elephants are named i mean we do meet some people deny the turtle's existence altogether but uh but for the most part on the discord yeah yeah. uh but for the most part people are sort of in agreement about those things which is a bit weird isn't it now you come to think of it 
I guess it's unambiguous. There's probably like evidence in a way that there isn't mm. about like, because you can, you can, can literally go see it. Yeah. yeah, people have. Whereas you can't go see the core of the earth. You just have to believe that yeah. it's there. <laughs> well, unless you're in an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel. And then, yeah. yeah. And then dinosaurs on the ground too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Or like that know. girl from that video who thought that we lived inside the earth. And that the sky was like the the crust of the earth. What is oh. this? Oh, it's just a video I saw on there Twitter recently where someone's like 15-year-old sister was like, don't we live inside the earth? Oh, it's one of those things where you find out, how does someone get to be 15 and not, <laughs> not know, know this? this. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, weird. Uh, well, I'm glad that she's found out now and not, <laughs> not later in life when it would be even more embarrassing. That's one of those things we've brought up a couple of times on the podcast about weird things you always believed until you were older. <laughs> I think we're rapidly getting off. Yeah, like in a is, book, Two Flower yeah. arrives in <laughs> Ankh-Morpork yeah. and he has four eyes, but those eyes are actually glasses. Yes, and meets, yeah. the, well, and meets it, the beggar, Hugh. And interestingly, I was sure there was a moment in the book where someone is horrified because he takes two of his eyes off, but I don't I don't I, think that actually happens. Maybe it's in The Light Fantastic or maybe I imagined it, but I, I, mm. I kind of felt like that was in there and that's like the payoff for the he's got four eyes yeah, thing. It just assumes that he's four eyes. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's not meant to be literal, as we discussed. Yes. Sorry, sorry, Josh Kirby fans. We just think he's... We, I, look, you whether or not he was trying to be clever and funny or whether he just didn't get it, I <laughs> don't know. Yeah, but he I got a brief. They didn't put that down. In the book, I'm pretty sure Two Flowers just got two eyes. Yeah. He's, hmm. he's wearing glasses, though. Um, but yeah, he's... And it, the world... The, this, the, it's the... It's a classic... What is now, you know, this was obviously the first time, but it's that classic Pratchett thing where he's taken something normal from our world and put it into this crazy fantasy context. So he's taken someone who wants to go on a holiday as a tourist and put them into, you know, Lankmar. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's also the description of it, right? Because you always have this thing in fantasy where there's that discussion of people being like, well, you should just call a microwave a microwave, not a, not a weird magic, you know, thing powered by a destruct engine or something like that, right? But Pratchett, I think, does it really well, where I completely understood instantly what he was talking about. That 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 wavers these days. That would be unpopular, yes? Hmm. I don't know. I guess it depends. Like, because maybe it's because it's been done now. That yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's well, a finite amount of being able to do that available. Yes. It's also weird reading this one because a lot of that stuff is, like, in the later books a lot of the technology that's magical that's presented in mm -hmm. this book is very commonplace in Ankh-Morpork. Like mm -hmm. in the later books, everybody's got a pocket watch powered by a demon. Everybody's got, uh, well, not everybody, but a lot of people have picture boxes that become yep. fairly common, um, et cetera, and so on. And, but in this book, no one in Ankh-Morpork has ever seen a picture box. No one has ever seen a, a watch. No one has ever seen most of the stuff that Two Flower brings with him from the Agadian Empire. And it's... Um, well, they're yeah. like the knockoff... Yeah, the capital of the disc, probably. <laughs> so you see it, and they're like, "Oh, well, I'll immediately make me yeah. some of those cheaply and sell them." Like probably Dibbler is responsible for oh, some of that down yeah. down the line. But yeah, um, I found that quite interesting. It's a good sure. theory. It's a good theory. I hadn't thought of that. Okay, so we don't meet him in this book, but he's he's definitely there. He's he's definitely there somewhere. But yeah, sure. I reckon it's, as soon as it's seen, someone's off being like, "How can I make money from this?" Yeah. Um, how do we? What do we think about Two Flower? Because we kind of meet him first in the book before the other protagonist 
I could not stop imagining him as John Cleese with a Hungarian phrase book. Oh, oh yeah, in yeah, the yeah, in the yeah, sketch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. John Cleese, yeah. My yeah. hovercraft is full of eels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. you said the the non-rude one. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> I memorized a lot of the non-rude bits of Monty Python when I was in high school. Um I don't know. Uh but yeah, uh so yeah, two flat. So you were imagining him as Initially, but then he just sort of settled into a a small man who's just yeah, very interested. Diminutive. In, yeah. yeah. Well, once they get past that device of he's using a phrase book, and I love that people's like, it's a magic book. It yeah, tells it him what to say. It tells him what to say. <laughs> it's great. It's like, because nobody's thought of writing down yeah. different languages. And just the thing where he's got an exclamation mark or a question mark in quotation marks as dialogue was fantastic because oh, yeah. you can yeah. imagine it so well. Like, we've all had those things where you know someone's like, what? Yeah. But they're not saying But how the do word. you write it? Yeah. 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 It's quite hard to do. Like, speaking of someone who's done audio drama, those moments can be quite hard to do. Like, yes. you sort of go, I'm just going to. I'm just going to make an expression, but in a way that makes a noise. And you sort of go, what? Yeah, just a, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, uh, you've got to really push it. But yeah, I love those bits too. Mm. Um, and just the characters that Two Flower meets initially are ones who, by and large, we never, I don't think we meet ever any of them ever again. Uh, but they are very much your sort of stock. They, they're very much from that world. And this is this is where, I, this is why I knew that, I, you know, this would be your cup of tea. Yeah. It pulls my strings for sure. Because this is all very clearly yep. inspired by and a parody of Fritz. Is it oh, Fritz, Fritz Leiber's, Leiber? yeah. yeah. Fafford and the Great Mouser. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Including yeah. the city itself, which seems pretty yep. clearly based on the city of Lankmar. Yep. Yeah. And the water works in the, in the Ankh. Like it's got water in it. Well, yeah, they do. I mean, there's it's, a passing it's more reference. Flowing, but there's it's... lots of reference to it and it like is a lot more flowing than usual. Oh, yeah, I know. I I was on Anchorwatch. I did. And... I did feel while I was reading it that this might upset you. It didn't upset me. I was just like, "What happened to it? Did the fire like glug it up? Like maybe they took all of the good potable water off the top to put out the massive fire, leaving just the gross stuff at the bottom." You know, like someone put a whole bunch of gelatin in it, or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And then the fire heated it up. Yeah. There's a well. There's a interestingly. That, so one of the fan theories is that this book and its sequel take place considerably before all the other books in the series, like 10, 20, maybe even 30 years. Is that because of the technology? Um, Partly because of the technology. Also because um, Rincewind is clear. Like we'll get to Rincewind in a minute, but he's clearly a fairly young man in this book, Mm. whereas he's consistently drawn and cast by everybody as much older, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. Because even in the, even in the later books, to be honest, he doesn't seem that old to me. Like I think he never gets older than he's about his fifties. Whereas, you know, if this is 20 years previously, he's in his thirties. So he's he's still a pretty young man, but um, yeah, I I think there's a lot of things that seem to match up. Um, and because also Ankh-Morpork is basically destroyed. It's yeah. like the fire of London, yeah. Yeah, uh, and we never hear about that. Um, so clearly it's all been sorted out by it's the time fine. we return yeah. to the city a few books later. You know, London's well, still talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but they mention it, right? They built like, a whole monument. <laughs> this is just one of the things that happen. It's just a blip and mm. then the city keeps going. Yeah. But I, I remember reading the description of the fire and I thought, how does it keep going though if the whole thing's burned down? Unless they build it up again, or is it just not burned down? Well, I think they must have saved a considerable amount of it because there's still references in all the later books to buildings that are like hundreds of years old and 
you know, I mean, bits of the city blow up fairly frequently, but yeah. things like Pseudopolis Yard and the Patrician's Palace and the um, you know, Unseen University. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all, they've all been there for a long time. They were not burned down in the fire. but They're probably what? made of stone, while everything else is made of wood, kind of like the Fire of London. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I think that that's, makes sense. That's, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then we do meet, um, you know, as Two Flower makes his way, <laughs> nearly <laughs> nearly getting killed, and he's got all this massive amount of gold. He's done. It's like two months' wages there. Like, he barely would get him by in his wealthy home. Yeah, and you're looking at it going, you've got like a million dollars. Like, this is crazy. But he, uh, he, it's amazing how little research he seems to have done like he's got all he can he's got a book that tells him all of the languages and he knows that about all the stories he knows the heroes and all that but my feeling on this is because they've strongly discouraged tourism as we find out there's not much available to him other than like the songs of sailors passing to the port and it's revealed that he writes his own phrase book like he compiles it himself of course yeah that's right so there's no tourist infrastructure so all he's got is the story of brave deeds and all of that kind of stuff so i think he's done all the research that's possible in a place that's quietly like a like a benevolent dictatorship that doesn't have closed walls but like Mm, or not so benevolent as it turns out but it's a it's yeah i that's true i i found it weird the way that like i it's one of those things where the joke you don't want to think too much about the joke because it's or it stops making sense because it's hilarious to think oh as a tourist on the fantasy world but then as soon as you stop to think why is he having all these thoughts about I've got to do more with my life when he lives in a society where there is no drive or thought? Because most people <laughs> yes. who feel that, you know, <laughs> yeah. that kind of traditional idea in the 50s and 60s that came in yep. of, you know, you've got to make lots of money and then go on a holiday. That's that's part and parcel of that culture, yeah. which does South not America. exist in the yeah. Agadian Empire or, or in most fantasy worlds because everybody's sort of on subsistence. But then we don't really find out much about what the Agadian Empire is like in this book either. There's a little little hints here and there from the things that the, the Patrician and that Two Flowers say, but we don't really so find out So the Agadian Empire about. is basically like Reagan, uh, USA, going to South America tourism. Is that the kind of thing? Yeah. I'm getting... <laughs> I, think, I think the intent, and, 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 it, and it's perhaps unfortunate in hindsight in some ways, is that he's more like a Japanese tourist going to Australia. Or right. or the or to Europe. There's several things about his description that sort of fit that stereotype. I mean, it also fits quite well the stereotype of the loud American tourist. The loud American tourist. Um, yeah. So that it's it's this interesting sort of mixture. But then his cultural background. I mean, when we revisit it in a in the later book, interesting times, it's much more clearly China. Um, but then there's aspects of it that are other things. So it's I mean, it's like anything Pratchett writes. Is that even when he's inspired by something fairly specific, he tries to throw a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think you can really pin it down. Too yeah, closely. it's hard because at the start I definitely didn't think Asia or China hmm. like that. That didn't come into my head because it was this, um, this really affluent uh, tourist going to a basically a backwater. Um, yeah, <laughs> just this savage place that he does not understand. But it feels like he's coming from the closest thing on the disc world to our world. Yes, yeah. You know, where people have jobs and yeah. get paid a salary and yep. have a watch and yeah. luggage and go on holidays. And insure their property. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so he, he arrives, he gets nearly uh, ripped off by beggars and thieves. He does a little. Uh, well, he does, but he doesn't know. Not in a ruinous way because he can afford it. He can so. afford being ripped off. Yeah. He's giving them these giant gold coins. Made literally of gold as yeah. well. Yeah. Solid gold. Uh, and he ends up in the broken drum. Um, so called because you can't beat a broken drum, mm-hmm. and um, that's when he finally meets Rinswind, the wizard. 
And this is, I mean, look, you know, I I know we have difference of opinion about Riz Wins. I liked him in this book. He's good in this, isn't he? And he's he's quite, it's because you can kind of see the DNA of what he becomes, mm. but at the same time, he's quite a distinct character in some yeah. ways. Mm. And I, I really like him in this book. Mm. Like, and I and I enjoy him in the later books, although I have to say less as time goes on. I think that the, the more he changes from his roots, the, the less, um, I, I mean, still liked him. And I probably always will because he's, you know, he's my first Discworld yes. protagonist. But, I, yeah, I just really enjoyed him in this book. It's probably like how Frodo loses the best parts of himself along the journey. <laughs> yeah, i go with that. It's the Sean Astin. We're coming full circle again. Yeah. There we go. Oh, no, there you go. I like that. So don't hang out with Sean Astin. Sean Astin. <laughs> You'll lose the best part of yourself. Oh, and then have to sail off into the distance with elves. I'm just thinking how much easier the trip to Mount Doom would have been if Sam and Frodo had had the luggage. Oh, infinitely. Could have just thrown the, the ring in there. Gollum would have gotten yeah. eaten. You might have enjoyed Lord of the Rings too. Yeah, I might have got more into it. Yeah. Almost like I the mean, thing I, about the they should have just used the eagles and there's that whole theory about yeah, how... Yeah, they like, literally could just... Like, <laughs> that's what Gandalf was trying to tell them, like, fly, yeah. you idiots. Yeah, fly, you fools. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, so harsh. I, I would, is, there, is there, like, a canon explanation of why they don't? I think they just don't know about it. I mean, yeah. apart from the fact that if they did, there'd be no novel. I mean, I would have thought that surely that would be too obvious. Like the eagles can pick them up at the end because the damage has already been done. But if they were flying to Mount Doom, they would get eaten by the horrible flying black beasts. But I guess the eye, I guess, Nazgul. And the eye would spot them. Like they're not very stealthy giant eagles. Giant eagles. And they pop pretty (laughs) easy too, you'd think. There's a few of them. You could send off some distraction ones. Like, Mm, you don't know which one has the ring on it. Um, two bombers going. Anyway, they certainly could have gotten a lot further, a lot faster, even if they'd only taken them part of the way. Yeah. But, you know, again, then you wouldn't have had the journey and it would have been the same in this book, you know, if they hadn't decided to burn do some pretty down. dumb things and burn the city down. Uh, <laughs> that's actually just insurance fraud guy's fault, yes, though. That's true. I love the fact that as soon as insurance is mentioned, fraud is mentioned instantly. Like, it just happens. But it's only in Ankh good... Morpork, because yeah. it doesn't even occur to Two yeah, exactly. that someone would do it's that. It's never happened in his country. Because well, they, I mean, shocking. He, well, you get the real sense that whatever his culture is like it's very it's very like they have very proper very rigid rules it's like everybody's like nobody would think of breaking the laws yeah which is why um, he wants to see the bar fight and all that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. right because yeah. we don't have that at home yeah like, i've never seen <laughs> a fight. fight and they're like what do you mean you've never seen a fight <laughs> um yeah but rincewind when he's first introduced um i mean he's there's several introductions this is one of the weird things about it being broken up into four sections i feel there's a, a fair bit of repetition in this book where things are introduced to us in more or less the same way with some of the same gags or at least variations on the same gags three or four times and rincewind it's when gets one sort of proper introduction and then there's a there's a couple of other times that it's spoken about but um the i, I actually is it worth me reading the the first sort of description of rincewind? yeah i think so yeah. look at him Scrawny, like most wizards, and clad in a dark red robe on which a few mystic sigils were embroidered in tarnished sequins. Some might have taken him for a mere apprentice enchanter who had run away from his master out of defiance, boredom, fear, and a lingering taste for heterosexuality. Yet around his neck was a chain bearing the bronze octagon that marked him as an alumnus of Unseen University, the high school of magic whose time and space transcendent campus is never precisely here or there. Graduates were usually destined for maidship, at least, but Rincewind, after an unfortunate event, had left knowing only one spell and made a living of sorts around the town by capitalising on an innate gift for languages. He avoided work as a rule, but had a quickness of wits that put his acquaintances in mind of a bright rodent. 
Well, the thing I like about that is just before that, it says he was watching the luggage and then it says watch, watch rinse, rinse wind. I was just about to mention that. And I think it's like, I, and I, and I, every time I read it, I'm not quite sure if Pratchett means he's watching the luggage, which is watching rinse wind or, or, or author, if it's yeah, asking us to watch voice. rinse wind, but I like it both ways. So it's done beautifully. And I also had the same thing, but then later they have a description of look at him, do look this him. about yep. Yep. someone else. So it's a technique, but yeah. I really love how it's ambiguous there. Mm, yeah, yeah. That pulled me up because that kind of authorial voice in most it's it was very common in like old school sword and sorcery stuff where the author would come in and then like say okay this is an important thing you should you should do this like you're being explicitly told a story explicitly which is you've fallen out of fashion quite dramatically these days Mm. but when i read when i first read that i was like oh okay is that a is that deliberate and then it appeared again later in the book is that a thing that appears later in the series not not? really and interesting i mean people often talk about how different and we have talked about how different in tone and style this book is and it it really is much closer to those older yeah i wonder if that is a deliberate deliberate evocation of oh yeah books, it, then. he's he's on record as saying this is very definitely a, a parody and an homage to particularly Lieber yeah um and the and Fafa and the gray mouser books yep but yeah rinse wins how do we feel about him in this book we, we said we liked him but what do we like about him what's he, different i think it's just he could be any of us he's in that situation mm. but he's also like oh i could do the wrong thing then he tries to do the wrong he thing tries to, yeah. and he fails at it but he I don't know. He's a real person. He's not a hero and he's also roped into it. But well, he says that later in the book. He says, I don't know how to be a hero. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like there's a reference later on, like in the last part of the book, how their journey up to that point has taken them six months mm. and that he's quite a different person now than he was when they set out. And you're like, oh yeah, well that would do that to you. If like up until that point, he's just sort of been slatching around Ankh Morport going, well, I can't cast any spells. I'm not a, you know, I'm a pretty crappy wizard, but I've got a good head for languages and uh, I can make a bit of a money. A very good head for languages, yeah. as it turns out. Well, he knows loads of them, um, but not two flowers language. They they find another one in common, mm. uh, which is hilarious because there's all these things that there's a great some great gags about things that language doesn't have words for because it's like the language of the small community living <laughs> on a bunch of yeah. islands. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, um, I don't know. I yeah. I just I just really like him. Rinse Rinsman mm. feels to me like Pratchett's. Uh, like Pratchett himself is the you know when you were talking about the homage and that parody of sword and sorcery he's a tourist in a sword and sorcery world he's experiencing things that you know would be common to a sword and sorcery reader in the same way that Two Flowers seems to be a tourist right like he doesn't react in the way that any of these protagonists like Elric or anything like that right like Elric is like the most anti sword and sorcery protagonist you get in within the genre right he's very much not a hero and all that kind of stuff and Morcock uh, that's Michael Morcock wrote him like that but like Rincewind is the even more anti sword and sorcery protagonist where he's observing the world above and yeah so I I loved him for that reason I think mm. There's a lot of that sort of genre awareness in this book too, not just from Rincewind, but from quite a few yeah. of the other characters, most particularly, as we'll come to know, um, from the Barbarian, <laughs> but but others too. Um, and I, look, I, I don't know that we need to go into too much detail about the plot of this bit. I mean, it's basically just different people trying to steal Two Flowers' gold yeah. uh, and plotting against them and each other. And Two Flower and Rincewind kind of bungling their way out of certain death. After... Winston's been forced to, he was going to escape with oh, the yeah. money, but the patrician said, oh, well, we've got a deal and with his hometown, which yeah. is that you have to look after him, otherwise they'll be mad and then they can smite us with a single nod. Yeah. I, I thought that the, the one thing that I faulted Rincewind for in this book is that 
while he sort of almost gets there, he never until quite late in the piece, and even then never quite just comes out and says to Two Flower, you don't realize how much money you have and how much people want it here. Like, he says it a little bit he at, does, the, at he, the start. Where I don't he's think like, Two Flower would believe him. Yeah, exactly. I guess so. It's so far out of his like re- frame of reference. Maybe Two Flower at the end of the book would believe him a little mm. bit because he does mature a bit towards the end. It does seem that while he's, you know, as as we've mentioned already, his country has quite an advanced grasp of, you know, reflected sound of underground spirits um, or <laughs> economics as, as we finally get the payoff for that gag. Yeah. Uh, but um, But they don't have much in the way of trade with outside parties. So there's no... There's no indication of, you know, an exchange rate or anything. And generally in this sort of genre of fantasy, which is very much, I mean, I think the other thing why now it's so familiar to me, even more so than when I read it, is that this is, it draws on all the same sources that Dungeons and Dragons draws on. Absolutely, You know, but there's that idea that that there are no countries as such. There's city-states and everyone makes their own coinage and there's just sort of a general agreement that, one gold coin is worth about what another gold coin is worth. Although Pratchett avoids using that kind of nomenclature and just goes for dollars and dollars. more pork. Yep. Um, Which again is quite sword and sorcery, you know, yeah. like lack of kingdoms, lack of big empires rather, mm. more city focused. But is that line about we've got nothing they want and they've got nothing mm. we can afford? Yeah. Which I yeah, think yeah, is yeah. great. It's like we, we want to buy, he couldn't buy a fish there. <laughs> yeah. He'd be like, that'll be an eighth of a rhino. Right like, <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the sort of culminating thing is that eventually in, while he's been, after he's been captured, cause there's a bit of, there's a bit of back and forth. So yeah, Rincewind tries to run away. It's told by the patrician, you know, you have to look after this person. Tourism um, department. The patrician then gets like a secret message from the emperor of the Agatian Empire <laughs> saying, actually, we want you to kill him. The, the yeah. vizier. Yeah, the, yeah, that's right. The vizier. Uh, is like, no, we want you to kill him. Uh, I, I know I told you to keep him alive, but now we want you to kill him. Um, and that, yeah, it's just, it's a bit full on. There's, there's some assassins, but they don't seem to be from the assassins guild. It's very, it's interesting. And like a lot of people describe, I, I wasn't sure where I, this would come into the podcast, but a lot of people describe this book and its sequel as Pratchett sort of figuring out what he wants to do. And I actually don't feel that at all when I'm reading this book. I felt like he knew exactly what he wanted to do with this book. Yeah. He wanted to pay homage and write this style yep. of fantasy and throw in some gags. But later, I just think he later on changed his mind about mm. what he wanted, what he wanted to, do. to do. And, yeah. he, and you know, he's, he, I think Equal Rights is still probably closer to this than it is the later books. And it is that sort of between Equal Rights and Mort are sort of the transition books. But these two seem, I mean, I felt like I was reading something from a very assured author who knew exactly what he wanted to do. It doesn't feel to me like a first novel. Mm. No. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's not. It's like, it's not the first, one he, not first thing he wrote. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought, this is great. Yep. Like it's, it is different in style. It's different in tone. There's a, there's some character decisions that are interesting, uh, in light of where things go later. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's I, like a pilot episode. It doesn't always reflect how the series is going to turn out. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's very competent and great. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the, uh, while, while eventually Two Flower gets captured, um, though he doesn't realize it, he's like, "We're having a great time." They just really want me to come to their party. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Rincewind is left alone with the something we haven't mentioned yet. This episode, the luggage, um, which follows Two Flower around, 
And there's a big chest made out of uh, sapient pear wood, a very, very magical form of wood that's left over from the early days of magic on the Discworld, which is something that keeps getting mentioned. That's yes. such an old school fantasy thing to do. There's a bit of magic now, but there used to be there loads. There used to be a lot more. Yeah. The Mage Wars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the description, there's a late description of the Mage Wars later in the book, which does not match the description in sorcery at all. Um, but uh, so perhaps there were two. There were two sets of them. Who knows? Um but yeah, the the luggage is just this wonderful creation. But again, it's one of those things where the way that it's drawn, kind of like we were talking about Two Flower and his having four eyes on the mm. cover, is not how I picture it based on the reading of the book. Like I'm always surprised that everyone has adopted Josh Kirby's style of drawing the luggage with tiny human baby yeah. legs. I'm like, I always imagined that they would be made of wood. Right. Like okay. why are they why are they fleshy? Like I don't think they're described as being fleshy in the book from memory. No. I also don't think, like, because it's such a competent luggage, it would be a pretty poor choice of yeah. legs. Like, yeah. if you're going to choose humanoid or, like, fleshy legs, you'd choose, like, something with hooves, perhaps. Yep. Yeah. Or with, like, monkey grips they could climb. You wouldn't choose human legs. They're kind of like the derpiest legs you can have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Particularly if you... Well, they're not designed they're not to have more than two of them, for starters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... And- it's always got. It's described variously as having dozens or hundreds of little legs. So dear little legs, according to the the blurb, which That's, I found yeah. really weird. That is not how they're described dear in any other place. Legs. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but I don't know. Like, if I was a, a magic luggage, those are not the legs I would choose for myself. Yeah, yeah. I think hooves. Yeah, hooves sound like the best because I always had the image in my head when he was running. You could just hear the clip behind him, oh, that'd be and that that great image. Hooves and some orangutan, like yeah feet because yep, then you could climb some stuff too stuff. that'd be amazing there's a few different types of feet because i don't i think it it has difficulty climbing that is something that does happen in the later books <laughs> listeners if you know any fan art where the luggage is drawn with different kinds of legs i would love to see that because i've yes. not seen it but also i mean this is something we talked about previously too it opens its mouth and looks at you it's always depicted as kind of going side on so like the face is on one of the short sides. Yeah. So that it openings its mouth. But then when it opens its mouth kind of it's sideways. Yeah, yeah, well, I always figure it is more like a mimic. So yep. it would make sense for it to look at you with its mouth facing you. Yep. But it doesn't seem to do that. And it's got the teeth even. So I love that sometimes it opens and there's big teeth and it describes <laughs> them as like white as the whitest birch wood or something. <laughs> and then a big tongue and then it closes and then it opens again and there's just laundry. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So Rincewind stuck with the luggage. The luggage is like threatening Rintwin basically. He's like holding him hostage until yeah. he goes to rescue Two Flower because they've been out taking photos of just things in the dangerous parts, assumedly the shades. Mm. But yeah. Yeah, including like the, the victims of the barroom brawl who, oh, that, who yeah. Rincewin claims are all these heroes that Two Flower wanted to see. I love th- I love that scene because that's the first mention I think of the watch in the uh in the story. And I love that he shows up and there's no reference to the dead bodies that the watch would have evidently had to walk over to get to the room and he says is everything all right here it's just such a good line <laughs> yeah 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 that's very uh, good and they do then they wait outside for the battle together yeah. and you're like oh this is clearly the and watch they, we that does later come back later love. though like yeah. yeah they do the same in guards guards yeah, yeah. it's great yeah um, everything all right here then it's so good <laughs> but it's during two thousand incarceration that he explains to broadman the man who owns mm. the the mended drum uh what in sewer ants, sewer ants yes. is, and it's that weird thing where, like, perhaps it's used the English word but made it unfamiliar to yeah. the speakers, so that it doesn't make any sense to them. A real like, old analog, yeah. Uh, and I love the the explanation that it's basically a bet. <laughs> it's like you give me some money, and it's basically a bet that nothing bad will happen yeah. to your stuff, which is true. 
And if uh, something bad does happen, I'll pay you lots of money. And Broadway goes, will you? Will you? <laughs> <laughs> but then he screws it up and he like really doesn't, he doesn't just burn his own yeah. inn down. He burns down most of the city. And I don't think, I, I mean, it's, presumably he never gets paid. But does no, he? No, he doesn't. But doesn't the insurance, because the insurance form goes off and gets worshipped on an yeah. island. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. They lose it. Yeah. Yeah. I so I d- about that. So I guess like it wouldn't have been lodged. It's not official. Yeah. Also, surely they're not so dumb as to not have a clause that says <laughs> if you burn your own house me. down, we don't have to pay you. Like, <laughs> like that's pretty standard. Like insurance yeah. investigators come and check that stuff out. But you learn through trial and error. And if no one in their society does that, they yeah. would probably not have encouraged them to put it in there. Because oh, no that's conflict. true. Yeah. It takes one douche for you to change the thing. That's, that's true. true. So he might have been the case that instigated that. Yeah. But also he's insuring something that's not even in the empire. Mm. So they'd be paying out to a to to Ank Maltfork. Yeah, it does seem which like they don't have trade to. But he did pay them with their own currency. He did. Yeah. So Yeah. So maybe it's all right. Yeah, it's interesting. But you know, he's just doing he's just it seems <laughs> weird that he would do his job yeah. while he's on holiday yeah. too. Surely. And he seems completely happy to do it as well. Yeah. Well, I mean he is captured at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you you know, if you He doesn't ca- realise that. If you captured an accountant and threatened to kill him unless they did your taxes. <laughs> Uh, I think that's the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it totally is. Um, But they escape. They escape the city uh, on horseback, uh, Rincewind riding off uh, with two flower, the luggage running behind as the city burns. And who do they meet? Firefed and the Grey Mouser. Well, pretty much. (laughs) Brav the Hublander and the Weasel. Weasel. um, Which is pretty close in name as well as character. Yep. Now tell it, Joel. You you're the most familiar among us with the Lieber Cannon. A little um, bit. It 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 definitely uh, flicked past my radar for the longest time. I was more of a Howard um, and Wagner kind Robert, of Robert E. Howard, Robert e. Howard of is, fame. Yeah, and, and Carl and- Edward Wagner of the other Kane books. Oh, um, Kane's a very popular name. I don't know if that shows up anywhere in the uh, Pratchett Discworld, but yeah, no. Uh, Fritz Leiber's series is very classically sword and sorcery, but at the same time talks a lot about the internal genre conventions of the book. Mm-hmm. So it says uh, it's already pushing the genre boundaries because at that point, you know, you've got sword and sorcery, which is already, it's very dated. And then you have uh, Leiber's work, which is pushing it as far as this genre is and going to go. funny too. Like he had a Absolutely. really good sense of humor. Yeah, which sword and sorcery does not, generally speaking. Yeah. <laughs> And when we say sword and sorcery, we're talking about sort of that particular early Very specific, kind yeah. of fantasy subgenre where you have uh, the heroes generally don't know any magic. No. It's fairly low magic, but again, there's that idea we talked about where there was a lot of magic, now there's not much. Magic is usually bad. Yeah, usually people who do magic are like worshipping evil gods or, yep. you know, summoning evil powers. Um, and uh, And there's a lot of reliance on... You know, just raw cunning, and the heroes are very often a bit grey in them, or not if not grey in their morals, like often just out for themselves. Like they're not traditional heroes in that sense of I must save people because it's the right thing to do. And yeah, it's definitely born out of that Howardian era of uh, America self reliance. You know, a hero eschewing civilization, so civilization is very bad, and the wilds are good. 
So you'll never see them, you know, mingling very fondly with city folk. Oh, you know, yeah, they, they, that's always the enemy. They go in the city and it's a hive of scum and villainy. Scum and villainy. I mean, Star Wars also draws on that. Absolutely. Lot of that stuff. Yeah. Routers Huxley does too. Yep. But he does a bit of a flip-flop later in his life because of his own personal circumstance. Yes. But yeah. There's an anti-sort of city message in Brave New World. Hugely. And it's yeah. like, mm. in our year of the Ford, like they yeah. sort of talk about, yeah. But then later he dies in America loving drugs. Like it's just... Yes, it's yeah. a big switch. I mean, uh, I guess it showed he was open-minded and welcome to be... I don't know. We'll do the Huxley podcast another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can sure. contrast that with the Lovecraft podcast as well. That'll be great. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll put up pictures of my Huxley yeah, shelf. Speak I've got of five copies of Brave New World. And look, this whole section, in fact, is kind of told in flashback, really, to these two characters as Rincewind meets them. And Rincewind knows them. And that, that's something else about him that's quite different in this book is that he knows all these characters. He's kind of very well known to the heroes that pass through Ankh-Morpork, probably because... They're the people most likely to need to make, you know, the acquaintance of someone who knows a lot of languages because they're going to be coming up to him with like strange manuscripts and amulets and some person they've rescued the, whose language they yeah. don't speak. And they're like, can you help me with this guy? And he's like, yeah, all right, but I don't want to get too involved. Just pay me some money. <laughs> and, and like, what an interesting character. I'm very curious about what kind of adventures Pratchett might have imagined Rincewind had had up to this point. Yes. Because he would have been much more peripherally involved, but still doing some weird stuff. So I'm I'm so sorry to bring it back to Lord of the Rings, but I feel okay. like in this book, Rincewood is on a Bilbo trajectory and then later on he sort of veers into Frodo territory. Mm. How would you characterize the difference between those two? So Bilbo's journey was less intense. It was like mm. the fun adventure that you have and then you go back yep. and you live your quiet life in the Shire. Yeah. And so he kind of had that big thing and then he could settle down. Frodo had the big traumatic Yes. epic thing that broke him completely yep. and even when he got home it it's wasn't fully whole yep. it wasn't the home that he remembered because it had also been touched by the whole war yes. and so it's different like it's it's almost as though he'd heard like is it uncle bilbo like that's there yeah. 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 yeah he'd heard uncle bilbo's adventures and sort of wanted that his whole life but the one he had was not the same no. and so it very much broke him so it's a this difference between a children's book and an yes. adult's book yeah basically. So he starts off as a sort of, with the potential to be a Bilbo, but he turns into a Frodo. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, does that, do you think that happens in this book or is it more later? I later. think yeah. um, maybe if they'd stopped one adventure earlier, he would have just happily Bilboed yes, off. that would have been a Bilbo. Yeah, but yeah, sure. but yeah. this sets him off to Frodo territory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in the next section, which we're about to get to, the sending of eight, that's when it sort of, you know, he starts to face horror. Like in the in the first section, he is as you say, he's having like so, certainly some bad things happen to him in the first one, but he's still having what could essentially be a fun adventure <laughs> when he's had a time, chance to sit down and and sort of get over it a bit. But yeah, in the second section, it's not like that at all. It's like there's an eldritch horror from beyond the veil of time, and yeah. it's nearly going to eat you. But um, he could have recovered from that, I think. But then just the other things. No. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah it's a downward spiral at that point. Yeah. And that, I mean, or upward. Uh, <laughs> Hard to say. It's very much like the Diana Wynne Jones book, Homeward Bounders, where it's just it, it's a fantastic book, very underrated. You should read it. Very Dungeons and Dragons, the mm. whole thing. So, yeah. oh wow, okay, I'm putting that on my list. Oh, it's fantastic. You'll love it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, it's not the first Wynne Jones book that's been recommended to me either. So I really, oh, they're all really good. need to get into yeah. her. This is a good entry point for you, I think. Okay. All right. I'm into it. But yeah, they're they're, they're in the home of the gods, Dun Manifestin. Yep. Uh, which is. <laughs> It's still, I still love that joke. I'm so glad he kept it. There's so many things he sort of just let go after this first book. That... I didn't get that. That's the first time I'm understanding. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 
So for how, the, you how know. many years old were you when you yeah when you realized Dun Manifestin was the god's version of Dun Roman? Yeah, uh, this is one of those times where we meet the pantheon of Pratchett gods for the disc world, and they're so like what a motley crew. A bit of like they're, they're essentially kind of Greek. Pantheon, except for the god of small bree- slight breezes. Oh yeah, but yeah, how did there's... he get in? Like, who invited <laughs> Zephyr? Well, you know, okay. Zephyr was an actual god. Yeah, but like, isn't in, that still funny? Our... Well, yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> he's not even like thunderstorms, or whatever. He's just yeah. a slight breeze. breeze. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, it's it, like someone's plus one who got like who just ended up yes. on the list. Yeah. for like ever, and just sort of keep coming to the fancy. He stands yeah. near the door. Yeah, <laughs> he just somehow got a membership. Technicality. He's, he's like one letter away from someone who's actually supposed to be there. <laughs> He's somewhat, he's like his mum or his dad was a member. Yeah. <laughs> he got in got in on a, on a family yeah. thing. Yeah, and this is the they're playing games with the people on the disc. And it reminded me a lot of the original Clash of the Titans film. They're, you know, playing this game on they've got a big game board and they put the little characters down, they move them around. Also reminded me of what uh, Barusa does in um, the Five Doctors, the twentieth anniversary yeah. Doctor Who special. The Doctor gets kidnapped out of space and time, and so do his like old companions and sent to the death zone on Gallifrey where they have to fight their way through all these like horrible monsters because the current president of the Time Lords wants to discover the secret of immortality. But he does it. Not only does he capture them, but the thing that he uses to capture them creates a little miniature of them. And then he puts it on his Dungeons and Dragons table and moves it around with a stick. And it's hilarious because I'm like, oh, he's... He's got a miniature making machine. He's essentially got like a, a, you know, before we invented them on Earth, a 3D printer. But um, yeah, it's very, very silly. That's so greedy that he wants to be immortal. He lives for long enough. Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? (laughs) But he's gone mad with power. There's the thing. And the doctor's very disappointed because. Time Lords don't go mad with power. No, who would ever? That never happens. Never happens. They're masters of their own fate. But as a kid, to have your own miniature-making uh, machine. Oh, yeah. Wow, what a fan is, what a power trip. Oh, the crap be. things I would have, like, made in miniature. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I wanted the ones from the show. I was like, yeah, I'll have the first five Doctors yeah. as little toys, please. And, like, they're friends. And, uh, anyway. Do um, they sell those? Because that does seem like a, a real strong merch push. Kind of like, yeah. they sell... Second they, Star Wars. I don't know that they've Harry ever Potter sold the up. ones from the TV show. I would We've got that. 3D printers now. We can make our own. Oh, it's true. It's yeah. true. You just have to... Design, I don't know how Design it works. Design and work on it. Can someone awful. just upgrade them so that you can hook up your brain, imagine the thing, and then print it out? I like that. Would that. Be the... That's a Philip K. Dick yeah. story right there. Yeah, but then in Philip K. Dick stories, oh, no, well, okay, that's a separate <laughs> They'd podcast. be alive, wouldn't they? <laughs> the 3D printer would print a living thing. Yeah. And they'd also print ads and you'd be living in your own hell of ads. Yeah. And it's also a government conspiracy for like something. And also it would end really abruptly because you've got to turn out those short stories really quick. Yes. Oh, yeah. I love Philip K. Dick, even though I just... Um, disparaged yeah. him a whole lot oh he's great he's, he's great. great no i'd actually never read do androids dream of electric sheep until very recently that's oh, right. so good right and i was reading the bit at the start with the emotion organ basically like blade runner is a whole different story yes yeah it it's is. great but it's a completely different story. yeah it takes yeah. elements of it but they are a complementary text yep. not adaptation or adaptation but not in a i'm putting the story on screen yes. way and you know in a similar way um, the sending of eight is kind of a completely different story to the color of magic because we have these gods that sort of appear out of nowhere. We haven't we haven't met them yet, and now they're playing something that's like not quite. Ch- it's, they're they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. Is what they're yep. doing. And this is what once you've played Dungeons and Dragons and you read or see any one of these stories where the gods are playing with the lives of mortals, you're like you're role playing. Yeah, that's role what playing. you're doing. Yep. Um, but you're playing it in you're an adversarial nerd. way, which is a weird thing to do. And two of the players are fate. Clearly, the 
god of fate, fate. and the lady whose lady. name is never mentioned but is clearly Lady Luck. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're not allowed to say her name or, or she or, will disappear. You just don't have She's any. She's classically fickle. And she has picked as her heroes an idiot wizard and a tourist. Because <laughs> um, she's got a soft spot for the underdog. And, yeah. you know, I think that they have nothing going for them except they are fortunate. But they basically almost immediately run into trouble because as they go into a forest, fate plonks down his, you know, killer piece that he's like brought out of a special box and everyone's like, how did you get it? It also reminds me of like X-Wing or one of those modern collectible miniatures games where the very rich nerd. Yeah. yeah, The rich nerd's got, I've, I've bought like an entire star destroyer. Uh, And he didn't paint it himself either. No, he's paid someone else to paint it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And he brings out this representation of this weird eight legged thing which is all suckers the, and tentacles, the eldritch horror from beyond the dawn of time, mm. and this becomes very much a a, a Lovecraft short story mm. with yeah. with gags and uh, and a sort of a bit of swords and sorcery thrown in. Absolutely, a lot of Conan for uh, sure. Loving the talking sword in the section there. Oh, Kring! Yeah, yeah. he's very sassy. But <laughs> he's also like he's he's like the old. Like war dog who's yeah. just been like, hear my boring stories that yeah. are actually really exciting but told in a really boring way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. he's so old as well. Like he's been around for thousands of years. You might have noticed the the nick about throwing it away up my my blade. Um, just sort of going to tell you about the war thing. And it's just yeah, it's the people who tell exciting stories so dully. Yeah. Um, with this section too, like as well as having Kring the magical sword, has it's the first of many times throughout the rest of the book where the characters stumble into an area that is suffused with magic when the rest of the disc world is supposedly a bit more bereft of it mm. because they go into this enchanted forest um, while trying to escape some pursuers. Ridswing climbs up this tree and accidentally damages it, which means he gets pulled inside it. And it's a whole other sort of dimension where the dryads live. So, which is, you know, that's an interesting thing. It's like basically the dryads have Pocket a TARDIS. Dimension. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, which is shaped like a tree. Um, and they're going to kill him because he's damaged the tree. But first of all, they're going to like make him watch Two Flower get eaten <laughs> alive by the cosmic horror that is Belshahamroth. Yeah. Which they worship. Which, they, yeah. which, yeah, which caught me off guard. I was like, well, why would you worship this thing? There's a, yeah, yeah, there's the, the nature thing and then there's the cosmic eldritch horror but next like door. Kind of like a big spider. So maybe it's like a nature right. thing together. I guess, yeah. I guess so. I mean, it, yeah, I, I like that there's all these like pictures of like eight legged creatures. Um, which sorry, what was that number? Yeah. Uh, seven. There's the, all these creatures seven, that have uh, more than seven, but feel the nine uh, legs. Mm. And I like that he specifies that wizards can't say that number mm. because they're innately magical. And that, and so Rincewind's dorm room was room 7A. <laughs> Um, and they, they've got all these little euphemisms like two times four. <laughs> but yeah, there's all these creatures and it gives him an excuse to do his first bit of sort of weird disc cryptozoology because he's got that Octasia, yeah. which is like, a, you know, I imagine like it's one of those um, uh, lemurs with big eyes, but eight <laughs> arms. <laughs> Sorry, uh, twice four arms. And uh, it's too late now. It's, it's, it's coming. He's, so he's it's coming out for us. Yeah. It's yeah. going to like these leaves in the middle of my table are just going to explode and yep. it's going to come out of the middle. <laughs> like um, Jumanji. Yeah. Um, Ridswind manages to jump through the portal that the dryads are opening so that they can watch Two Flower get eaten. Just get a TV. Get an imp. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, all you need. Two Flower has just wandered there because he's like, oh, there seems to be some signs telling me to go there. And even the wolves in the forest that were chasing them earlier are like not dumb enough to go there. <laughs> and then they say the number. Although it's Kring the sword it's that Kring. says it. Yeah. First. Why can't you say it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, why can't he say eight? Yeah. Why doesn't just he know why he can't sword. say eight yeah. with thousands of years old and his magical sword? I guess he's getting forgetful. Yeah. 
That is, that's plausible. Or he's just dying for a bit more adventure and he does it on purpose. Maybe. Yeah, he, he yeah. wants to slice up some tentacles. Pretty sure like a sword can't die, so... Yeah. What's the risk to him? He might have to sit at the bottom of a lake forever. for a while. That sounds even more boring. True. It's boring, but like... he He's good at boring. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he, yeah, he can also, handle it. Also a note on the temple, because that's like very classic... Conan stumbles on a weird temple in the middle of nowhere. Why is it there? Who knows? It's there. It was worshipped in ancient times. You, yeah, the, when magic was very yeah <laughs> common. This, this is a remnant of the evil gods of magic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was imagining it as the Winchester Mystery House, like that like super haunted <laughs> house, because cause it's got the, the number of things, like the repeated yes. motif yep. of like two times four. The repetition, yeah. Um, and it's yeah. kind of like the avoiding number of the beast, but in the Winchester Mystery House, number 13 is used in all of the architecture. So I was kind of like, oh, it's kind of like that, where there's just like... Repetition of the yeah. number. All oh, right, that's interesting. Yeah, there's because there's lots of little details that kind of like in Lovecraft, he's always trying to describe things that cannot be. You know, when he's talking about non-Euclidean angles and you know cyclopean architecture, they mention that the 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 temple is like. Uh, tiled with tessellated octagons and you're like you can't tessellate octagons <laughs> not not like regular <laughs> ones anyway but like yeah it's 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 sort of left up to your imagination the classic go. lovecraftian method of jamming words together violently enough to produce a sentence mm. yeah. Mm. yeah which is thankfully avoided here now i also always get this god's name wrong i well, realize I wrote it down because i always say bel shahamroth but that's not right it's no. bel 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 Shaharoth or Shamharoth. 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 Yeah, so he's a bit of a sham. But these, he's not really described except that he's got all these tentacles and, and a big eye. And so he, he actually reminds me, or it actually reminds me more than anything else, of Shumagorath, which is this character from Marvel Comics yeah. who I only really know because he was weird, like not, and a fairly obscure character he's from beam. Marvel Comics. Yeah. He's a- uh, and he's basically a giant eyeball but with massive tentacles. Um, who's like an elder being that's evil and uh, but straight he, up B villain, yeah. yeah. But he appears in the fighting game Marvel versus Capcom as a playable character. <laughs> like so, all the other all the other characters like superheroes and supervillains yeah. that you've it's heard it. of with like arms and legs and like superpowers. And then there's like a eyeball with tentacles. You, you know, there was play. one designer yeah. on that team that was super passionate about putting him in. Yeah, yeah. it's just like <laughs> let's do it. Let's we do need it. a giant eyeball. Well, yeah. It just sounds like all of the the bad things from Lord of the Rings. It's like Shelob plus the eye. Yeah, mm. yeah. I know. It's just they're so down on things that have more than seven but fewer than nine <laughs> legs. I just a lot of my favorite creatures have that number of legs. I love spiders and no, and cephalopods. Alone. I love them. They're so great. Anyway, I, 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 even in Australia. Like, I mean, if yeah. you live somewhere where they weren't, like, out to murder. Murder you but they're not in your out bed. To, yeah. look, they're they're really out to not, defend themselves. They're not out to murder us. It's just that if you, you know, force them to bite you by rolling over, hassling them mm. or squashing them, then you prob- you might die. But, but like, not- why are they so poisonous? Like, because it can't be, like... Are kangaroos that vicious? <laughs> well, <laughs> just you know, drop That's a kicking. good question, actually. <laughs> but they escape. They escape the clutches of Bell Shamharoth, uh, thanks to the salamanders. Yeah, and I was because exposure. Yeah, but also he's the soul stealer, right? And they have mm. that line about cameras taking pictures, stealing a part of your oh. soul. Is that why it defeats 
the soul stealer because That's taking a great. picture of it. I had never thought of that. That is so good. Right, because the reference is right at the start of the book and then oh, it yeah. pays off in the middle. Yeah, I I didn't reckon, even, That's intentional. That's great. It's got to be. Because it was the light, but also I was like, yeah, it's like holding a mirror up to the yeah, yeah. Although my basilisk. Favorite, my favorite part is right at the end of that where they sort of convince Run to sort of keep looking after them because they'll take all these photos of him, which yeah. is like, this is amazing. Um, yeah. But then <laughs> two flat hands rinse with the photo. I thought you might like to see this picture. And he's like, it's got a blurry thumb in front of the <laughs> monster and Rinsford just says well that pretty much sums up my life that's one of my that's my favorite that's moment great, of the book yeah. right there that's so good and that's yep. something that makes me just really love the Rinsford in this book more because yeah. yes. it's just so matter of fact about it. it's like oh yo it's fine he just becomes sort of more I mean look I'll be interested to revisit his later books because so far what we've read is uh, we've really only read for him um, Sorcery and Eric and that's very sort of that middle period of him and he's going to come back in the interesting times and it's going to be I think quite interesting to see what he's like in that book but interesting times indeed yeah 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 because um in this book he's great in those books he's sort of good I actually really like him in Sorcery as well but he's got he's a lot more petulant mm. he's a lot more like this isn't fair. Whereas in this book, he's like he's not got time for that. He yeah. understands the gravity of his situation, and he's not yet complaining about how this shit always happens to him. He like, complains a lot more towards the end of the book rather than the start in the middle. He's been going for like six months, I guess, and it's yeah. like at the beginning he's like, "Oh, this is unusual for me." Yeah. But then later on, it's like his life is like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's all turned. It's all turned for the worse <laughs> since he met Two Flowers. It's just yeah. gone downhill. No it's one. a wonder that he calls him a friend. He should have just stuck in that alternate reality where he's a Swedish, like, academic doctor and it's fine. Oh, we're, we're coming up to that. Yeah, bit. we are. What yeah. a strange bit. But, you know, if the first part is Fritz Lieber and the second part is H.P. Lovecraft, the third part is clearly Anne McCaffrey. Yes. Because mm. this is riders. where it's all, yeah, it's all dragons all the time uh, and people who ride them and hang out with them. Mm. But there's some cool, you know, again, though, even though he's doing these things where he's clearly doing homage or parody of other riders... He's also putting his own interesting stuff in there. Like I love the in the Wormberg, which is this sort of weird inverted <laughs> iceberg of a stone monolith, and there's a big sort of hollow inside it where the dragons hang out. Um, Literally, yeah, they have these massive steel rings, and then there's all these little steel rings that they wear these hook boots yeah, to walk the hook along boots. the ceiling yeah. to get to them. I'm like, that's <laughs> so weird, but so great. Yeah, I really liked that. Uh, and the clearly, strangest hanger in history. Yeah. yeah. Uh. <laughs> Oh man, uh, yeah, that was uh, I really I, I liked that, and so, it's you know it's the idea that he comes back to in Guards Guards that the dragons can't really exist normally; they have to be fueled by human imagination and and magic. So he has a weird vibe as well that I got from this that I probably imagined two other people in the world would have got from this, which was the really strange, weird animated movie by ralph bakshi oh the dragon fire and ice oh no i was thinking of a different one yeah right so fire and ice there's this giant glacier with a hole in the the top of it and you have this old like well not that old but he's got gray hair so it assumes he's quite old um guy called necron and he yeah he, he has a very striking resemblance to the old man in the Wurrenberg. Oh, yeah. And it's, yeah. And also the general lack of clothing as well in the in the iceberg. The very, very cold iceberg. Like, again, very classic sword and sorcery. You're in the middle of the of the Arctic. You've got no clothes, but they're fine. No goosebumps. Is it like imagination to keep from the morm? Yes, absolutely. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine dragons. You can imagine yeah, the, the cold. Yeah. 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 You I just don't so. see it. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I guess so. It's like that Doctor Who episode after the 50th anniversary where they, for no good reason, are like, well, you have to go naked into this church, <laughs> but you're allowed to wear hologram clothes so yeah. that no one can see that you're naked. You're like, what, what? is the point of yeah. this? Yeah. But yeah, so the, we meet the protagonist. So there is the, the dragon lord who's mm-hmm. dead. Um, and then there's his three children, um, Liesa Dragon Lady, who's very directly named after one of Anne McCaffrey's protagonists. Yes. Whose name is like Lesser or something. Yeah. You, we have a very similar thing with Chimera in um, Conan as well, with the oh, taking yeah. of the name Conan. Yeah. So yeah. the Chimerian. And in this one, it's Sumeria. Uh, well, they also um, they mention the land of Chimera. Yeah. That's Chimera. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or Shimra. Um, but yeah, it's it's very... Oh, yeah, I don't know. How do, you, how, how do you feel about this section, Liz? I don't know. Like, it's it's hard to... Because I, I did read some Anne McCaffrey when I was younger, but I've seen so much more Game of Thrones. Mm. So I could not... <laughs> so you could not get the image. Yeah, there. so it was very much like, stop imagining Daenerys. Daenerys. Stop mm-hmm. imagining Daenerys. Stop. So like, I just basically pictured Amelia Clark. Mm. So it was like Daenerys with brown hair. Yeah. But <laughs> and a lot of brown hair. She's supposed to have lots of hair. Yes. Like, that's not practical if you're riding around on dragons, surely. But if they're dragons of your imagination, then surely your hair should be fine. I guess so. But, but no clothes and long hair. Classic. Yeah. Mm. I liked how tough she was in terms yeah. of, like, she wanted to take on her brother. She was very decisive. And I yep. liked how her dad was affectionate that this is the child <laughs> of mine that had the, like, yeah. the steel to kill me. Yep. Like, mm. That's why he, like, <laughs> likes her the best. So and she I, has the best power on you. of summoning yeah. the dragons as well. But I was a bit sad that um, she was not as good as her dad at imagining dragons. Like, he could have been lying. He could have been like, oh, back in my day, I could imagine 500 yeah. dragons. Yeah. But And he was just being a jerk to Two Flower. I love that Two Flower can imagine a dragon. Yeah. That was one of my favorite parts. Well, because he's a dreamer. That's his whole thing. That's why he's the only one of his people yes. to go away. So And the only one on the whole disc to go, I'm going to go on a holiday somewhere else just for fun. Exactly. And see all these amazing things. And he's... And, you know, that was his whole impetus was all these fantasy stories that he'd read. And now about, he's living it. Yeah. Yeah. Except that he knew that they were real in a far off place. So he wants to go see them. And that, in, you know, and he'd read about dragons. Then there's that great line where he's like a world that didn't actually include dragons seemed like a pretty poor sort of world to him. Um, and I also liked that when he accidentally summons a dragon, because in this place, you know, if you if you really believe or if you can imagine strongly enough, because they kind of also say that Lesa doesn't really believe in the dragons. Mm. She just sort of does it because she knows she can. Yeah. But Tuflar really does believe down in his heart that dragons should be real. And so he imagines one. And it's not like the sort of little functional ones that Lesa <laughs> yeah. imagines. It's like a massive green. Like I, I was imagining like uh, Elliot from like Pete's Dragon. Oh, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Um, this atypical dragon. And yeah. super polite. So I was imagining, yeah, this massive green awesome dragon and again shades of dnd like when he's describing the dragons hanging out in the roost pratchett's writing about how they're black and white and green and red and i'm like oh all the colors of um, dungeons and dragons dragons yeah. and that's kind of like joel's earlier point about how two flowers almost an analog for pratchett himself at some points because he comes in knowing all this sci-fi fantasy stuff and he's the one with a very good imagination who comes up with world. yeah dragons mm. so and another point on liesa She's kind of like the person who inherits the family business. She wants the money, but she's not like passionate Investing. about building it up from like, <laughs> like, like an apple cart to like a big fruit empire. Yeah. Whereas, she's good at it, yeah, but doesn't really care about it. There isn't There's the no spark passion. at the bottom, which is yeah. why her dragons are so crap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I liked how utilitarian she was about Hron as well. Yeah, she's like, oh, we'll catch these purpose. guys. Yeah. And you're, the biggest one might be strong enough to like be useful in my conquest of this land. And if he's crap, I'll well, I'll just let the dragons eat him. Eat him. But yeah. then she sees him and he's like, oh, you're. 
you're a bit of a babe. (laughs) And her three tests are very much like very to the point. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It's like one, uh, you're alert enough that I can't kill you. Uh, Two, you've subdued my two brothers. Uh, Three, well, we don't explicitly say what it is, but (laughs) we're going to get it on. And it is quite, um, I think we got a question on Twitter about how this book was more salacious and Mm. what was the word? Libidinous than other Pratchett. (laughs) And there is, there is like, there's certainly more implied sex in this book. Than... It's playing to the Conan vibe, absolutely, oh, in this yeah. section. Yeah. And I kind of like Run's internal monologue, though, where he's like, look, you know, normally I rescue like these beautiful maidens and yeah. we, we hang out for a bit and then I sort then of we just settle them off. down somewhere. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm getting on with it. I'm, I don't I'm know if you know, one, but I'm part yeah. of a traveling narrative, so I can't <laughs> settle down or the story ends. Uh, and yeah. that question was from Ian Nichols. Oh, thank you. Um, and, and I think, yeah, absolutely it is. But also, in some ways, I mean, like in later books, like when Carrot and Angua, who are two of the characters from the Watch series, when they get it on one of the series, one of the books, um, it just says the bed springs went gloink. Which, again, seems too salacious. Yeah. I know, it seems a bit. But, but you know, Pratchett's characters do have a life below the waist to, to steal a, a phrase from the Death by Books uh, podcast. Well, but, and he describes Run as priapetic at one point or something mm. like that as well. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's so <laughs> visual. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, also, it, like, switches the, the dynamic here because it's not her own story. It's Leessa's story in one sense because she's the, she's the one making the decisions in this particular scene. In Conan, it's the rescue, whereas in this one... She's planning the whole thing out. Yeah, mm. but I, if Run like Conan is very much he doesn't usually set out to have a specific adventure. No, it just, just happens. Sort of roaming, and he comes across something and just goes, "All right, I'll it's, run with this." It's the man in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like he was saying, like when Two Flower when in the dungeon says, "Oh, what do you think is going to happen?" He's like, "Oh, well, they'll probably burst in and put us in an arena. Then I'll have to <laughs> fight like these two things in an eight foot person, and then I'll find a servant girl who'll show me the different the way out of things." It's like, oh, "Is that how it usually happens?" He's like, "Yeah, that's it's very true. matter of fact. That's pretty yeah. much yeah. my life. Yeah, <laughs> this is how I've, it goes. I've done this once or twice." And you're yeah. like, "Oh, okay. You can just." Like he's clearly like at least a tenth level barbarian, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, oh, which actually, the one thing I haven't mentioned because we're getting up to the bit where Rincewind almost casts his one spell, and they mention again, this is something we've talked about before in the early books. There's a lot of stuff that is clearly from both Dungeons and Dragons and the the tradition because Rincewind talks about. He spends a lot of time, particularly in the first and second parts of this book, complaining about how crap magic is because you have to spend all this time memorizing Memorization, spells, yeah. Which is the the Jack Vance, um, like Dying Earth series style magic where you have to read a book and you memorize the spell, but once you cast it, um, the memory of the spell goes out of your mind with the magic and that's what powers it. So then you have to read the, the spell and memorize it again, which is how magic works in the earlier editions of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so it's kind of like how studying for exams works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you put all this knowledge in your brain. That's great. So you power your score in the exam and yeah. then you don't need to know that anymore. It's unimportant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, um, and he just, he just talks about how much that sucks. Cause he's like, yeah. And he's like, can't you like turn into an animal? He's like, no, that's like an eighth level spell. Uh, and, and he does, he says eighth level spell. He doesn't say seventh, yeah. eighth level spell, but, uh, but he's like, and it would take like four days to memorize it. And then you cast it and then you just have to do Let's that again. again. And I'm like, yeah, that does sound crap. Like it, it takes all the fun out of magic. He's also like a better person than I think a lot of people would be. Cause like he's been in some pretty life threatening situations and he hasn't been like tempted enough to just do the spell and see what happens. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It's not until he's very definitely going to die falling from a great height because two flower rescues them 
from the top of the Wormberg, which is the magical worm uh, dragon place, uh, where the uh, Leas has got Hrun fighting her two brothers who are on dragons. Um, and Two Flyer takes his dragon, which has busted him out of the prison, and he picks up Rincewind and Hrun. Hrun doesn't really want to go. He's no. like, no, I'm on a good thing here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but then they fly off and they're being chased by the other dragons and they fly so high that they run out of air. The air gets too thin and Two Flower passes out, at which point he's no longer imagining his dragon, who he names after his master, <laughs> who's called Nine Reeds. I thought that was great that he named it after you know, the person who trained him as an accountant. Uh, but then, yeah, because he passes out, the dragon disappears and the three of them drop out of the sky. And Liesa rescues Run because she needs him for his her plans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, the other two are just plummeting towards Earth. They're going to die and... Uh, actually, it's earlier than that that Rincewind says the spell because it's when he's rescued by Two Flower that he stops saying it. But now they're plummeting towards Earth. And then for no really apparently described reason, they suddenly switch into another plane of existence. Yeah. Like, quite Earth. literally. Yeah. And they find themselves aboard an actual aeroplane. And, and one of them Swedish. Yes, yeah. Rinswind. Doctor. <laughs> yeah. Doctor, Although it's meant to, yeah. it doesn't actually mean anything in any language. It's no. Like, um, it's just sort of meant to sound a bit foreign. I always thought in my when I read it when I was young, I always thought it sounded vaguely Indian. Because yeah. Because I've not heard yes. a lot of Indian yes, names. Yes, I had, I had the same thought. And I was yep. like, where is this? I don't know. But it just, it's, it's just meant J. to sound foreign. IJ, I yeah. think, is the one that does it. Um, Jack Zweiblumen. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Very German or Dutch. Is it German or Dutch? I'm not sure. But yeah, they find themselves in this alternate existence and are briefly confused and think they've been eaten by a dragon and they're inside it. You know, I always remembered that this happens in the book, but when I got up to this bit, I was like, he's disarming a hijacker. Yeah, there's a bomb. <laughs> and that was very topical in the 80s. Yeah. Like, there was a lot of hijacking of planes going on yes. in the late 70s and early 80s. I was like, wow. And the cabin crew were like, oh, that was very brave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I didn't even realize I was doing it. I was like, have I missed something? Yes. I had, yep. And so I went back over and I was like, I have, but I can't find it. Yes. I had the exact same thought. I went into it and I said, wait a minute, maybe I've just blurred my way to, through two pages and I haven't figured this out. And I was like, oh no, I have still no idea what's happening. Mm. So mm. yeah, right up until the end of that section, I was like, oh, I get it. And then it was over. And then I'm like, well, did I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, my I always thought, and it, it kind of when you read it back, I don't know if it's really supported by the text, but I always thought this was a residual effect of him almost casting the spell and that the uh. magic of that sort of had lingered around and then had finally taken effect. But there's no, the, the book doesn't really describe that or give a reason yeah. why they are suddenly transported into an alternate universe Um where simultaneously they've just arrived, but also have always existed as these other yeah, they've versions always been of themselves, there, yeah. and then um, suddenly pop back into existence in the disc world a little bit later when they're closer to the ground and many thousands of miles away over the ocean. Yeah, um, and I, I, I was, it was cute, but again, yeah, I, I don't think he really rationalizes it. Yeah, in their hallucination, like they, they were up in the up atmosphere. In the but, mm. oh, yeah. Although then, why are they still alive if it was only hallucination? Because they should have smashed to death on the ground. But who knows? Is who that also knows? a recurring thing in the Discworld? The inclusions of real world? No. No. no? This, is this, is, much, this is very yeah. out of there. There's, right. I mean, there's little references to things like, uh, like there's often ideas from the real world that wrap yeah. up. Yeah. Like, I mean, and there's one point where Rincewind says to Two Flower, this is another fine mess you've got me into. Yeah. And it's clearly a thought that's come from somewhere else. Yeah. And that is very common. 
but yep. not this actual physical intrusion into our world. That that has never happened before or since. Well, there is no before. It's never happened since this book. Um, or unless it maybe happens in the light fantastic. Again. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> Stop yeah. saying that on the podcast. <laughs> no. I only know every episode. Uh, okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, uh, it's um, or a flat disc. Uh, you can just like keep editing them out, and I'll keep saying it. Yeah, no, I would never edit it out. Uh, but yeah, the, it's it, it's weird, and it's but it's fun, and I I like I. I, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, it's, I, I think from a narrative sense, he doesn't really justify it, but from a fun sense, I think it fully is. And it's, this is something like that during certain eras of Doctor Who, uh, on my old Doctor Who podcast, we would talk about, um, where sometimes maybe it doesn't necessarily make logical or narrative sense, but it makes emotional sense. And this, I don't think makes emotional sense, but it makes comedy sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's a funny thing to do and it's weird and more weird because I think, the comedy in this book is there and there's some great gags, but there's not as many as in the sort of subsequent books, which really sort of like the early ones after this really ramp up the gags quite a lot. Um, and then it kind of settles down a little bit, but it is funny in the sense that it's weird. It's also another situation they get themselves in, which I think is the wonder why you put it in there. Maybe it's just like, Oh, this is just another thing that happens to these two unfortunates. Mm. And it's also incredibly specific, right? Like, it says um, all of this, however, totally lost on Dr. Regin's wand. 33, a bachelor born in Sweden, raised in New Jersey. That was the point in which it lost me, where I was like, oh, he's using the names. Not just simply referring to the plane or anything, but very specifically the names. But yeah, very strange. 33. Does that, like, give us an... Well, yeah, well, I, it, I suspect he's the same age, so that yeah. makes sense to me that he is in his early thirties, and I—that's how I always imagined him. And mm. when I was in my early thirties, uh, which is you were also a wizard dressed in red. Well, I felt yeah, and like you kept like having to lead magical tourists around. They kept giving you gold. Yeah, coins. I could imagine uh, Ben. Yeah. It was more that, and I, they imagined you a dragon. And <laughs> it's more that I really wanted to play the character. I thought that would be fun, and I still have. Look, you know, I've no, said you'd this be in a previous episode. I would love to play Rinsmith. There is, there is like um, he doesn't appear in most of the plays because he's not in most of the books. But there is a. There's, there's a, a version of his first three stories. So this one, uh, The Light Fantastic and um, uh, Sorcery, which I sort of edited together and it's called The Rinse Cycle. <laughs> and I'm like, I would, I would love to do that. I don't know. It, it, and I thought, always thought of him as being a bit older than me when I was, yeah. you know, around the time I was thinking about that. I mean, this, I'm preempting another question, but we won't have time for all of them. So I might as well. Someone did else did ask, what did we think of David Jason in The Color of Magic telemovie? It's kind of a miniseries slash telemovie because it was in two parts and it combines both this and the second novel together. And David Jason was cast as Rincewind. Oh, this was from Tara Atkinson. Thank you, Tara, for the question. I actually have not watched it. And the main reason is that I just think it's the worst casting ever. <laughs> like David Jason is funny. I enjoyed his work as a young man because he's the voice of Danger Mouse. And I love Danger Mouse. Oh, wow. Um, so he's clearly got a good comic timing yeah. and he's great as Albert in um, Hogfather. But he's just way too old and he's just not right for the character. Yeah. And I just like, I can't, like it changes the character so much for him to be an old man. 
Like a funny Gandalf. That's a bit silly. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, and I assume that they've done that because they cast Sean Astin as Two Flower, that they wanted that kind of, well, we want a Gandalf-style character to go with our Hobbit-style character. Oh, and like, dear. Yeah, no. Yeah, that's not cast a And they'd, they'd already reason. cast... I also thought it was just totally weird because they'd already cast David Jason as a totally different character. It makes more sense for them to be contemporaries in age, though, as well. Yeah, because they become buddies. And yeah. also, they have to run around and ride horses and escape from things. And Rincewind, at no point in the books, not even in the later ones, is like, I'm too old for yeah, this he's, shit. Yeah. Like, he's, he never says that. Uh, he's just like, this isn't fair, rather than, I can't believe this has been happening for me to me for 40 years. So Yeah, he doesn't constantly refer to arthritis. He's completely fine. Yeah, I don't think you can age a character by, you know, 30 years and just keep them the same. So, I, yep. yeah, so I, I think that's a weird thing to do and I that's why I haven't watched it. I do want to watch it because I do love Sean Astin and like, I do really like Hogfather and particularly going postal. I thought they were actually really good. So I should watch it, but I mean... You know, probably we'll watch it and we'll do an episode of the podcast about those shows at some point. Before we get into the final section, I do have a question about Rincewind that I wanted to flag. And I think it's a good time because they talk about his real world version as mm-hmm. well. And as a side point to that, I think the fact that he is Swedish and raised in New Jersey is a step towards explaining his language skills. Mm. Um, but uh, multilingual. throughout the whole thing, he's complaining about like he's not really cut out to be a wizard and all the things that two flowers talking about sort of hints at science and logic and it seems like he would have a much greater affinity for that mm. so my query was if he existed in the real world who do you think he'd be what would he do beyond like i think that's a good interpretation like of it's not an interpretation terry pratchett can choose what he wants to do with his characters yeah but it seems like he exists in a world where his field isn't quite there yet mm. so he has to make do with what is there which is magic so I'm just kind of wondering where he'd fit in in our society. Yeah. I think, you know, this is something that I, I, I'm glad you brought it up because I'd forgotten it but, it, but I wanted to talk about it because I love that aspect of his character where he's always talking about, you know, magic is so crap. Like you have to put all this effort to do it. Wouldn't it be way better if you could harness lightning to do stuff? Or if you, you know, if the picture box works by some sort yeah. of weird arrangement of gears and levers and so like lenses. Like an Edison and, type character. And yeah. then he's so disappointed when it opens up and it's like a little demon in there and painting like, pictures. Aw. And he's yeah. like, oh, I thought that was just like a joke. I didn't think it was really what was going on. Which is another question that we got given, like, did he forget quickly? Because he makes a joke about it being a demon painting pictures and then it turns out to actually be that, but... It's not that he forgot. I think it's that he yeah made a joke, he, and then it turned out to actually be that which sucks. Yes. Yeah, I think he just didn't assume that that was real. Like, because that's the sort of thing that someone would say if he didn't understand how it worked. You know, like when little kids ask how TV worked, and and you know, people sometimes go, "Oh, there's little people, little in people there. inside." Yeah, yeah, yep. like you know, it's that kind of explanation. It's a lie to children. It's that thing that Terry Pratchett talks about a lot in the later books, and they forget about it. And the, the the worst place where they forget about it, and it doesn't really come back, is in the Science of Discworld books. Where Rincewind's in all of those, like they're the like they're mostly the last books mm. where he has any kind of significant part, um, and he's not like finally a world that runs on science. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, but to get back to your actual question, I don't know because I don't know if he's cut out for academia at all. Because he, he is an academic in the in the little brief section because he's like yeah. doctor 
Rinswind. Rinswind. Yeah. yeah. An expert in what essentially is uncontrolled fires in nuclear reactors <laughs> uh, is what that translates to. Um, but yeah, I maybe that maybe that's it. Maybe he would have like because he certainly he would enjoy the it, from the way he talks about magic. He would much prefer to understand physics and yeah. chemistry. Nikola Tesla or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So whether or not, but I don't know whether he'd actually be a research scientist. I feel like he'd be more like a lecturer. Mm. I don't feel. Yeah. I don't think he would. Like make breakthroughs or thrive in that way in the field, but I think he'd be very content, maybe in a university there, like a a lecturer, happily just nerding out over the science, living in rooms in college. Yep, I think he'd be one of those lecturers that probably the students would really like because he'd be really enthusiastic about About it, about what he's talking about, and does the same lectures every year. So he's like nailed it. Yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I think that would be good. And he, and you know, obviously in a world. If he was living in our world, he also wouldn't be like nearly being killed by magical disasters every five minutes. So he'd be incredibly happy. Yeah. Yeah. He'd be quite, yeah. He'd I probably think be so. clumsy and accident prone in a different way, though. Yeah. yeah. Like maybe he loses his notes a lot. Yeah. Something like that. Totally. Yeah. I'd love mm. to see him show up at some point in the Watch series. Mm. Probably not in the first season, but in later seasons, bring in characters from the rest of Discord yes. who live in or hang out in Ankh Morpork because the. Obviously, the fans want them. And also, they'll be able to inject a bit of interest. It's kind of like, you know, you get into later seasons of The Flash, they bring in characters like Elongated Man yeah. and like all these weird so things. you have the Rincewind like, episode. Yeah. yeah, you have a Rincewind yeah. episode of The Watch. So I hope that they do that. I think mm. that would be fun. And and that they cast him as appropriate age as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think yeah, that makes sense to me that he would be sort of a lecturer. And now the circumfence. Oh, so good. So they crash into the sea uh, and they... Kind of use the the luggage as a, well. They don't use the luggage as a raft. They use something else as a raft because the luggage is trying to just get to plummeting. them, but is yeah. behind them through the dehydrated stage. sea. And yep. actually, just before we get onto this section, another little thing I'd forgotten is that the picture box has got a tripod, which is also made of sapient pearwood and runs <laughs> along on its legs. And I'd totally forgotten that, yeah. and uh, I thought that was really cute. But they they lose it, so it's gone. But hopefully, he's still got his pictures. Well, they'll be in the luggage because he was yeah. storing them in there. Because it's not a digital camera. It was like a Polaroid. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because you get them them instantly. But yeah, now they're lost without the luggage and they're out at sea. And when we rejoin them, you know, and we find out it's been six months, not necessarily since the dragon thing, but since they left Ankh-Morpork, they're now sort of cast adrift, having just escaped from a ship full of slavers with the luggage. Actually, they did use the luggage as a raft. That's right. And then they Mm. got picked up by a slave ship. They've managed to escape, but the luggage is still on board. Like terrorizing everyone, <laughs> it turns so, into a horror movie. You know yeah. who they reminded me of is the the pirates in the Asterix books who always yes, get sunk yes. every time the Asterix and Obelix have to Speaking go somewhere about, else. Um, work safety at the end of each yeah. of their disasters, yeah. so good. And there's that guy, the lookout, who's always like, who unfortunately is quite a racist caricature, <laughs> yeah. but apart from that, is a great character. He's amazing, yeah. Um, which is a hard thing to say, but anyway, um, and he's always like the goal, the goal, the goal, the goal. It's the goal. And if you can't even get the name of them out, and they get destroyed. And it's always incidental. Yeah. Like, they never get into a fight with the pirates. It's just Oblix gets on the oars and, yeah. goes, and smashes straight through their ship. And it's always the same image of them in the sea hanging over the same pieces of wood at the yeah. end every time. And they're always pissed off with their captain. Yeah. It's, um, 
Pirates that came up with insurance, isn't it, as well? Like, they were the first users of insurance. Is that true? I didn't know that. I started in a, For Bartholomew Roberts, yes. I don't Welsh know that pirate. level of detail, but, yeah. it was, but it was more for, like, lost limbs. Like, if you lost a limb while being a pirate, then you, like, you'd oh, get paid. Certain, I have heard that. A I rudimentary did, form of I it. I never thought that of that as being the start of insurance. That's amazing. But they, um, they mentioned pirates when he explains this insurance initially, and I was like, is that a nod? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, because he's like, right. you know, if you're okay. taking your cargo somewhere and you get attacked by pirates. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I didn't know Interesting. That. There's all these little things. This is happens in every Pratchett book. Mm. He's so clever, and he's got all these little references. Very few things are accidental. Mm. Um, I mean, sometimes people attribute things to him that he's like, I didn't do that. Yeah. Like he actually swears that he did not. He was not thinking of Anks or um, Owls when he named Ank Morpork. He just thought it was a good name. But he's later incorporated both of those things into the coat of arms. Yeah. But when he came up with it, no, he just liked the name. Yeah. Back on it up. Yeah. Exactly. And Rincewind, it turns out, is a name from an old newspaper column that he used to read when he was 13 that was kind of like satire of London society and judges and things. And he had this cast of characters who were piss takes of various like important yeah. judicial figures. And one of them was called such and such Rincewind. And he never realized that was where it's from until someone pointed it out. And he went back through and looked it up and went, oh, I guess that is where I yeah. got it from. Oh, well. <laughs> He's like, doesn't matter. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, they're, they're adrift. Hmm? for a while uh, <laughs> on this leaky boat of sorts and they're very quickly realizing that they are a little bit too close to the edge of the disc world. Just a little. Two Flowers not worried though. He's like, oh, that's exciting. That's great. Yeah. Can we do yeah. anything about it? No? Well, why worry? <laughs> I do like that, you know, because we, we've skipped over the fact that there's one footnote in this book. Yes. Yeah. Just one, which it's- goes to great lengths to explain how the seasons work on the disc yes. world. But one thing that's never explained is where does all the water come from and where does it go? Because the, the rainfall, it does go right off the edge of the disc mm. into space and is just is presumably gone. Maybe it's like a like a magic thing that catches it and it just goes back it's up It's like a magic middle. shell that keeps the air in. Yeah, like it falls and the onto sort of like a magic goes... plate almost and then like oh. and then it sort of like it's pumped back up to the middle. See, I kind of imagine that scene with the elephants as taking the water with their trunk and just putting it straight back on the world. Oh. That was my... Which means if you live near the rim every now and then this giant just, trunk just, just giant comes trunk. up and is like, <laughs> this is my only job. I mean, the sea is pretty weird as it is. Like that surely wouldn't it be would the weirdest fit. thing. Yeah. That's just, yeah. yeah. I, I like that. They never... You know what? Interestingly, I don't think they ever quite describe... I said they. I don't think Terry ever quite describes how big the elephants are. Like, because they're variously depicted as being quite small, as in that they sort of form a central pillar in the mm. middle of the disc. And then in other illustrations, they kind of... Go, like their heads are near the actual Edge. rim. And but I don't that think he ever make... establishes how big they are. But what's the what's the disc resting on? Is it their heads? Uh, it has to be. It's on their shoulders, I think. How and oh, their backs. how do elephants work? Are they Cause, like because that's one how it level? revolves? Is they sort of I think they move on their shoulders, and that's why the disc revolves. I think that's described in one of the books somewhere. Does it mean the the top peak of the head is the same height as shoulders? Or lower. It gets kind of sloped, though. Yeah. I thought elephants had heads higher yeah. than their bodies. Oh, do they? I do, yeah, I don't know how that works. But they must be bowing their heads. Because their heads don't stick out from the edge of the disc, either. Well, you could take, like, turns. Like, maybe, like, three of them are holding up the world and one takes a break and then they rotate. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it gets down on its knees or something. Yeah. Or maybe the shrug is the signal to change watch. Yeah. Because they, they must now. have a really boring life, those elephants. Because they don't get to go anywhere. Like, at least the is swimming through space going somewhere, but the elephants are just always standing in the same spot. And but they, they don't get, get a constant suntan, though, or star tan. And they don't get to look at each other. No, they can't even talk to each other very well. Oh, I guess they, they probably have work banter. 
Well, well the our butts are touching to again. <laughs> how's, how's the weight, Barry? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not. It's not well, the trunks Barry. could talk to each other, true. technically. Yeah, they could aim. In different yeah, they directions. could aim backwards. Oh, I guess that's true. That's true. And it depends on their perception of time. Because it could be very brief to them. They could be playing games, maybe. Into I spy. Cosmic I Spy. That's <laughs> yeah. what I was going to. Because they're essentially on the world's longest, universe's longest car trip. Mm. It's bright and glinting. <laughs> Starts uh, with A. Is yeah. it a chewing? <laughs> yes. Yes. I see something that begins with D. Disc. <laughs> yeah, that's all they could see. Water, disc, stars. stars. T. Well, Trunk. Well, we also uh, know, I mean, we're about to get to the part because this is really the only time where Pratchett describes other worlds in the Discworld universe is in these first two books because he's not, he, you know, he's sort of the other planes of existence and other sort of cosmic realms, yes, they come into some of the other books, but this is the only time he sort of describes other physical places that are separate to the Discworld. Yeah, because Waterbag comes from one, doesn't he? Yeah, Tethys. Yeah, yeah. Tethys. Yeah. yeah, it's much nicer than Waterbag. <laughs> Waterbag. <laughs> I said that really offended. I was like, "Wow, how dare you call him what?" It's like my favorite character. It's like when Bender calls us like flesh bags or whatever. Let's be fair. He's not. He's not a water bag because like surface tension is holding him together. He doesn't spill either. Yeah, but it's like how in the lungs, like it's the the fluid there has surface tension that keeps it together. So I assume he's just like lung water. You've thought about this a bit too much. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, look, and they haven't even met him yet in the narrative where we're up to, but they, yeah, that's, sure. they're going to get caught in the circumfence, which is such a good name. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's so good. Like, it's, it's fantastic. It is a pun, but also it's just a really smart name for what it is. Yeah, it's, it's my favorite It's my favorite pun in the book, for sure. Yeah, it's very good. Um, and they, they just edgy. sort of... Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, you know, because oh. so they get, they get, they they think they're going to go over the edge of the world, and they get caught in the circumference, which is this sort of weird sort of net thing at the edge. Um, and then they they kind of black out, don't they? Or they or they do they get rest? No, they. That's right. The um, Tethys comes along on his little raft and pulls them onto it, and then pulls it because the raft is on these weird yeah. little wheels that Rinse. click into the um rope. And Rin Twins passed out, hasn't he? Because he wakes up and they're on yeah, the... Sh- yeah. That's right. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't want to look around at the water troll is what he's been told. Oh, yeah. And the troll he's... is very Eeyore. He, yeah. he comes across very Eeyore. Well, he fell off his own planet and landed on a Discworld. Like, <laughs> I that think... doesn't turn someone into Eeyore. Yeah. And every time he finds friends, he has to hand them over to yeah. the slavers. Yeah. And, you know, he is... The... And he is basically a slave. He just gets to keep his tongue because presumably they can't cut off his tongue because it's made of water. He just makes a new <laughs> one out of the water. I don't know how that would work. And this but... the Eeyore thing where he's, they like they try to swipe him with a sword and then he realize they're going to get collected and he's like, that didn't hurt me, but that hurt me. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, it doesn't, and it doesn't hurt because he's so short because he's got a chronic oh, taste of tides. The tides. Yeah. Oh. Is he supposed to be Scottish because he has like that pseudo whiskey drink as well that they he gives them water, but it's yeah. got like a oh, whiskey yeah. name. Yeah. It's like uh, some pun on Glenlivet, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where he's... I couldn't discern that from him. Just is, sort of grumpy old English dude. Is I, there some Scottish mythos of like a water creature? Oh, yeah. Well, um, there's um, the water horse, which is called a, not Selkie. um, Kelpie? Kelpie. Yeah. Kelpie. Mm. Yeah. But they're not like that intelligent, I don't think. I mean, there's like, you know, bog hags and and, and lake witches and stuff like that. Bog hags. And you thought water bag was bad. (laughs) But like, that's what they're called. That's actually what they're called. It's still pretty mean though. I mean, no wonder they were pissed off the whole time. Yeah. They're like, well. Bog hags. That's what you're calling us. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I will drink your blood and steal your children, you jerks. Uh, Yeah. um, I'll show you bog hag. (laughs) 
because and you know those are the sort of legends that you have when you know there's some very deep lakes uh, and That's very cold true. times yeah. and not very good visibility because of all the mist, mist. and you know f- just vanish into the, the sea. Yeah, yeah. So the swamp makes sense. But yeah, I love Tethys. He's what a great character. Mm. Um, and he's uh, is uh, I mean, Tethys is a character from Greek mythology. Um, or Ro- oh, it might be Roman the name, but it's but um, one of the moons of Saturn. I think is named Tethys. Um, but it was like a water nymph, I think, right. rather than a than a dude. Um, but similar kind of lived in the sea, yeah. associated with water. And they mention his planet, all blue, all sea. Bathus. Yeah. 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 And um and he was like one of the sailors who'd go out into the, the dry parts <laughs> yeah. to find stuff. I thought that was great. Is there what world literally like all sea though? Like that wouldn't that be like us living in a world of flesh? Mm, yeah well more i think like, we live in like a world of hydrogen and oxygen and also like it's, it's made yeah. of the stuff we're made of so i guess it's just yeah i guess it's like we live on the solid parts of our land not in the liquid parts in the liquid, and he lived yeah. in the liquid parts of his world and not on the solid parts but he does say it's all blue yeah so who knows who knows but, but then again you know it's like uh, rock trolls live on on mountains yes so it's kind of like that I guess. Yep. I don't know. Anyway, uh, but yeah, the circumference. What a great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. And the whole like, again, he's very in this book. Uh, later, he's he does like to figure out how things work, but he's more interested in how um, the culture and the society of these things work, and then the technology is important when it's yeah, important to the when plot. It's important. Whereas yep. in this book, I think he feels like he's much he's having fun. Exploring the mechanics, the mechanics of the world, yeah, mm. sure. um, which I enjoyed as well. I thought that was a lot of fun. And the, the way that he describes how the circumference works and um, crawls sort of sticking out over the edge. And then when uh, the, they come to collect them, the um, Krullians, and they're coming on the, the big glass uh, lens that's like a, you know, it's more like a, a watch lens like you'd use in chemistry rather than like a, a you know, a... a Fresnel lens, yeah. although they do call they do say the spell that creates it is named after Fresnel, which I thought was great. Uh, and another Dungeons and Dragons spell name. Um, but uh, yeah, they how that works, like the mechanics of the hydrophobes who are to, to, trained not just to fear but to like loathe water and reject it with their loathing. There's a lot of description in the vehicles as well, like in how the ship is, and even Tethys's vehicle, like mm. that's super well described. The cables connecting, seeing where the ropes are going. So I think we get to this point in the book, and then it really kicks up into the science part of the story. I think mm. like this final chapter feels very much leaving the world of sword and sorcery behind, moving into something else. Yeah. It's sort of Water fun. old, no. <laughs> oh, no. Not that. No one's got gills. No, no, Paper. No. Paper. No. No. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, the... Um, uh, the I, uh, uh, I'm so sorry. I thought we were going to avoid that. Reference. I mean, it's also... I mean, we're about... It's about to turn into, like, you know, Apollo 13 as yeah. well. So I don't know whether... Yeah. Uh, but... It's yeah, the Krullians, because uh, so, they've got that sort of very kind of fantasy technological society, but also they have loads of magic, just heaps of magic, um, including like this thirteen. Now, the, now when when they're being fetched on the lens, and there's all the hydrophobes strapped to it who are propelling it above the waves, the the person who's come to collect them is I thought that was a really weird sort of specific mm. character because she's. She's a 13 or 14 year old girl yeah. who like when she takes her cowl off and she speaks to them in a language they can understand. Um, and she's got like this like rod of nullification and she's been briefed on who they are and she's got a name. And I'm like, 
is she going to be important? Because I don't remember her. And just, there's a lot of yeah. yeah, there's a lot of detail that's got into this character. And then, but it's like weird detail. Like Pratchett's like his incidental characters are always really interestingly well drawn. They're never like super two dimensional. Like they've always got like at least a, a few interesting personality traits to to hang on. But she feels like she's sort of set up to be something else. Like we don't really find out who she is as a person. You know, in one of the most recent X Men. Um... Anna Paquin is billed very highly, even though she's in like 10 seconds of it. It's because <laughs> yeah. she had a whole arc about being rescued from the school. They got cut out because it made the movie drag. And I kind of oh. feel like maybe there was an edit that Where she that was bit, more yeah. significant. But now I'm just going to imagine the... her as a young Anna Paquin. Hmm. Like so with an first, Oscar? From the first, uh, yeah. <laughs> and for the first X Men movie, uh, instead of from um, Days of Future Past, is mm. the one you're talking about. Yeah, that's it? right. Yeah, because there is a net. You can get the edit that's got her storyline in it. Like they've done a director's cut style. I don't want to watch it because it's boring enough to cut. So that's what I think <laughs> would happen with Marchesa. But what they do have up their sleeve is they're sort of waiting to be executed as sacrifices. Yeah. Is um, while they were on the boat, nearly going over the rim. Rincewind spotted a frog as one of the things that was getting swept mm. over and he used an oar to rescue it. And Two Flowers sort of gives him a look and he goes, oh, you know. <laughs> and and it, you know what? As a character moment, it felt so very... It fitted this version of Rincewind yeah. so well. Mm. Like, I don't know that I would imagine um, the modern Rincewind doing that. Like, Probably I think swear he'd, at it a little. He'd be too, he'd be too freaking out. He'd be too, like, yeah. complaining. Losing it. Uh, and, and depressed and just be like, I'm going to die. Me, 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 me. And you're like, oh, come on, dude. Uh, but he rescues the frog. And then it turns out that the frog um, was like the, well, not, not was, but was, you know, hitchhiking on the frog is the lady who appears to them and says, I will give you one moment because... Fate is really pissed that the lady won her game against him earlier in the book by using Rincewind and Two Flower as her pieces, and so now he wants them dead. And in order for him to give his blessing to the um, craft that the Krullians are about to send over the edge to try and figure out whether Atuan is a male or female, um, which is basically a fool's errand because you cannot tell by looking from a with a turtle like it's the, the, the they have they don't have it's are not there external small turtles on the disc. There are. They- Okay. But but you'd have to mm. dissect we wouldn't have to dissect them but you'd have to like grab them and like examine them very closely and um apparently mostly in zoology you sex turtles by comparing them because they have a few things that are different but you have to have multiple Barry Wyatt and like giving the lights no I don't think you have to wait for the big bang and then they should send the craft over no no. so how does one sex a turtle you you compare the males and females because you know that the males are generally smaller but they have thicker tails Oh, so you just get like a get get another giant turtle. Yeah, you yeah, hold it. They, yeah. they don't have another one, so they're not going to be able to compare anything when they go over the edge. So this is this was the advice <laughs> that I, I was reading about this, and like this is what a zoologist said. That's like they, they're not going to be able to do it. Like they won't yeah. know. Couldn't it's, they just measure him though? Like, they could use like physics, or, yeah, to, to measure it so that when they you have could, something to compare it to, you could do that without having to go down there though. Surely. You could work that out if you could observe it. Because they already dangle things off the edge. And they can see the tail. In crawl. They mentioned that at the start. But this is the first time they're sort of launching something out into space. So what are they planning to actually do, do you think? It's not very clear how it works because they never really explain it to to Far and Rincewind. Like you know that they're going to launch this craft and it's going to go into space so it can see the turtle. But you're not clear exactly how it's supposed to get back. What they're going to achieve, yeah. Or what exactly they're going to do measurements-wise. 
Why did we go to the moon? What did it really achieve other than we could and sort of helping with the Cold War effort? Well, uh, it was, you know, it achieved a lot of things, but less so the the arrival on the moon didn't achieve that much, but all the technological the advancements yeah. required to get there the race did to loads it, yeah. of stuff. And, you know, it's also useful to have landed on the moon and be able to observe things and say, okay, well, now we know the moon is like a real pain in the ass place if we wanted to live here. <laughs> so it could be kind um, of like... That like it could be their arbitrary reason is they want to see what to develop gender the technology to get human is, but it could be like that's just the reason to make them do a thing, and there could yeah. be some political intrigue above. They oh. seem quite earnest about it, though. Yeah, but I guess the scientists would be. That's true because they don't show the people be above the scientists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's we also like, glossed over the bit where the person who designed it was um the the dactyl the gold eyes oh, dactylos yes dactylos who um. Yeah, it was just a master builder who kept getting bits cut off him every yeah. time he did good stuff. And then yeah. eventually killed. Yeah, which happened to plenty of real world designers. Yeah, yeah that's the classic Taj Mahal ism. Did that, did that, that happen thing? to yeah. the Taj Mahal yeah, yeah. person? The architect, yeah. Oh, wow. Wasn't the plan he for the to put out his eyes because he didn't want him to make another one like it? Oh, apparently, yeah. the similar story in uh, Russia. Russia, yeah. Yeah. I had this book where it was just a list of. Horrible things that happen to architects. <laughs> I would to read be a career the heck out decision. Of that. Yeah, it'd be like this sounds like a great. They idea. never tell you that in careers class, do they? Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of, in a way, reminds me of J.K. Rowling, and um, because one of the things that when when Harry Potter was getting popular, there were a lot of people who were like, "Well, this isn't very good stuff for kids." I'm like, "Are you serious? Like, do you know how many kids are like googling mythology now because she's like used a basilisk in her story?" And mm. people were like, "What the hell is a basilisk?" And before the top hit for it was like the Harry Potter wiki. Um, you would look it up on Wikipedia and we go, well, a basilisk is a creature from folklore in these countries and these mythologies and this is what it means and these are the different ways in which it's been depicted. And then in, you know, wait, after all that, there's like in popular culture. And you're like, well, this is cool, you know, and that it's exposing people to lots of stuff that they wouldn't otherwise be interested in. Oh, yeah. Or um, people learning about ancient Rome by reading asterisks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how I learned about ancient yeah. Rome. That's, that's how I know that there's such a thing as Gaul. You know? Yeah, and also how um, you can get questions horrifically wrong in science class if you're going off the universe song by Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit out of date now. Uh, there is a more recent version of it. Like he did, Eric Idle wrote an up to date version of it for oh. for oh, I can't remember what it was. It was some science thing. Anyway, let's not talk about it. Uh, we're back in the room where Lady Luck has helped them out. And Lady who? The, oh, you, the, you can't the, say her name. The lady, actually, the lady, the lady. And I like that her her like moment that she gives them is that earlier on, um, Rincewind throws this bottle of wine because they're yes, you know, they're giving suspended. them this lavish mm-hmm. lifestyle for the like one day they have before they're sacrificed. At the Hunger Games, um, yeah, or uh, or that episode of Sliders. Um, did, Which I still haven't watched yet. Oh, it's no. good. The last episode of the first season. The first season's great. The last episode of the first season is a killer episode, and it ends on a real cliffhanger, which they they don't. Don't worry too much about how it's resolved because it's not resolved great. But it's such a good episode. Um, and uh, it's got a similar thing where there's uh, someone who's, you know, given a lavish lifestyle because they don't have long to live. But, yeah, they um, he throws this bottle of wine at the um, the attendant who casts a spell to slow it down. And there's but, a good amount of jealousy. Yeah. yeah. And then the, um, the magic winds down. <laughs> just as they come back to collect them and it pings him in the head. And so they 
um, I think Rincewind needs somebody in the groin while yeah. they're surprised and they run off. And he's he's actually quite like spry and active Rincewind yeah. in this book. Like in the right at the start when he's like in the barroom brawl, mm. someone's about to throw a dagger at him. He like throws up his hands and pretends to cast a spell, and the other guy flinches. And he keeps talking as he walks down. Kick him. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's great. I love it. It's, I actually have a note. I I, I remembered at this point exactly as you said. Um, where I thought, wow, oh, he he hits a lot of people. Like Rincewind mm. does punch a good number of people and knees a lot of people in the groin. He's like so. a weasel. Yeah. You know no, he... there's already a weasel in the book. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Mm. But he is like a rodent. <laughs> so <laughs> like they said, like yeah. the rat that yeah yeah a, yeah, yeah, a, yeah a mouser one might say. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, but we um, but they they get out of there. Uh, they end up like they run through the city looking for somewhere to hide. They go into a special chamber. And in the special chamber, there's these two, two white leather suits, suits hanging up from hooks. And Rincewind, again, with his genre awareness, is <laughs> yep. just like, you're going to... I gonna, knew you were going to tell us that we should get into those. These. Yeah. And eventually they do when the two Krullian Chelinauts come in and talk to them in a language that they don't understand. And they almost speak back before Rincewind like, stops too far because it's like, no, they, remember they cut all the tongues out of the slaves. I thought that was really clever. That. Mm. It's just a nice little detail where yeah. they... That's Rincewind thinking on his feet and being smart about things. And even in the later books, actually, I think Rincewind... He is quite cluey and smart. It's just that he becomes so jaded and cynical that it overrides that and you don't notice so much because he complains about having to be the one who sorts this stuff out. Yeah, and there's, there's a good balance, I think, in this one where he's he does complain a lot, but he also solves problems. Like he's, he yeah. sort of stumbles his way to victory for the majority of the book. Um, and then we get the, this great final sequence where yeah. they... Um, are, Disguise themselves in the Chelinaut suits, having knocked out the two people who are supposed to be wearing them. Which one's waddling? Uh, well, I assumed that would be Rincewind because yeah. he's got his robes on underneath. Ah. But right. it might I also thought, be Two Flower because he's yeah. smaller and it doesn't fit him as well. I, don't I thought Two Flower just for the comedic effect. They do the, describe the the guys who are supposed guys. to wear them as yeah, big strapping lads. Um, but yeah, they they go out through the the crowds who are watching, uh, and there's the one of the head. <laughs> Astronomers is like, wait a minute. He's like, he's totally, totally figured out that it's not them, and he's about to cast a spell to like zap them, but they're crowded, all standing up and applauding, and kind of in his way. And then uh, this sea monster that had been previously <laughs> reported as coming on land, and they're like, well, we get sea monsters all the time, just kill it. Uh, arrives and that gets zapped by some magic, which destroys the seaweed that's on it, and it's of course the luggage, <laughs> which has finally turned up following its master. And then there's this magic. I just imagined it like like there's this sort of one zap of magic and then a bit of a pause, <laughs> and I can just see it like in a, like a sort of Spielberg high yeah. special effects scene. And then there's like all these bolts of like different magical spells going, <laughs> um, and this this smoke and and the you know it's sapient pear wood. It doesn't care. It's yeah. unaffected by magic. Um, and they escape by ending up on the vehicle that's meant to go over the, over edge. the edge. With Tethys, the sea troll, who's who's been inside the luggage all this time, got swallowed by it. <laughs> Living at the edge. Yeah. <laughs> he's got this great thing where he talks about things and then when he's, he gets to the end of his little monologue and he mm. says, here on the, the edge. edge. And it's yeah. always in italics. Yeah. And I was like, is that a reference to something? Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. It's, but it's... I just really liked it. It's like his And Rinsman goes, can you stop saying that yeah. at one point? Yeah. Here on the edge. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's like he's his grisly catchphrase. Um, yeah. It's like time's flat circle. Yeah, <laughs> it's your, that's your one. There we you go. Die on that bridge. <laughs> times two. Uh, and they eventually go over the edge. And I, I like that Two Flower by the stage when he's once he's realised what the 
the vehicle is for. And after hearing Tethys's stories of these other worlds, because Tethys describes them in this, like this one that's like Norse mythology, because it's like yeah. a serpent coiled around a the world dragon, and there's all ice. Yeah. And then there's like another one and another one. And Tethys like, I want to see this stuff. This sounds amazing. And Rinswood is like, you are crazy. This is a bad idea. But Tufar's like, I'm going in. And he gets in. And I'd totally forgotten that, like, Rincewind doesn't go in with them. He's sort of, like, hanging onto the outside. And then there's that little bit at the end. Literal cliffhanger. Where he's, yeah, hanging off the edge of the cliff. And uh, it seems like death is there. Mm. And because we... Lady Lux helped him out, probably, by catching him on a tree as he goes over the edge. Um, And death's like... Ha-ha. And we haven't mentioned death because he shows up quite uh, we, quite a I, bit earlier. We need to because there's a lot to say about yeah. him. Yeah, he is not the same. He's not well. There's the glimpses of the character that he becomes, and mm-hmm. I think out of all the things in the book, it's Rincewind and Death that are the most different from whatever else happens. Like mm. even the patrician who um, maybe he's has, not veterinary. He's well, like he's got veterinary vibes, but he's not. It's an interesting distinction because. That was the fan theory for a long time, but Pratchett's like, no, it's the same guy, but everyone was still going, no, we don't think it is. And so he was like, sort of gave up and he was like, all right, it's the same guy written by a worse author. <laughs> it was like, that's <laughs> okay. We don't like that explanation, but all right. But fine. Yeah. Um, it could be him if you imagine it. Like, it could well, be the same person. And I also thing. thought he was going to show up and crawl because I had the whole, like, he liked jellied jellyfish and candied starfish and then they were being fed that stuff i'm like oh is veterinary gonna show up and then Mm. i was like wait that didn't happen yeah no it's just it's just fancy food everywhere is like gross jellyfish stuff apparently (laughs) um but yeah death is is very different in this book i mean uh there's there's again there's a fan theory that it's not the same death but it has to be that somebody else is filling in for him during the events of this story like he's having a little um holiday he is the kind of death, and I'm sorry, Joel, because you haven't read this one, yeah. but he is the kind of death, I think, that Mort would have been if he, like, because they, they imply that Mort would have gone real dark, but I think if mm. Mort was just, like, doing the humdrum death, and it was just his personality, he's just a bit grumpy and just a bit hard done by, and I think that's the kind of death this would have been. Just having a bad day. Yeah. yeah bad he, life. Because he says, sod you, then, like, at one yeah. point, and, like, the death we all know and love does not talk like that. No, he's much kinder. And it's there's also that thing where it, early in the book, as he keeps turning up to claim Rincewind when Rincewind isn't going to die. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, that's not how death works. Like, he knows when someone's going to die. Yeah. And he scares a cat, like, a ninth to death. Yeah, that is mm. not... It, no, it, that really is at odds with the death that we know, who loves cats and kittens and would never hurt them. Um, and I, I think that it's... Yeah, it's, there's that... Again, there's that fan theory that this is not the usual death. Death is like having a bit of a holiday and this is somebody filling in for him. Um, to which I think is based on like an aside in one of the books that may or may not indicate that that has happened. Um, and then by the end, and, and but all early on, as as Rincewind sort of escapes his clutches and Two Flower as well, um, where he seems determined to kill, him, he's like, "No, I, this is my hobby now. I'm yeah. gonna get your souls." Yeah. And it's like he's not collecting souls; he's like just arriving to make sure that people's souls leave when they die. At the send right them on time. their way. Yeah. So they've got the saddlebags thing where they imply it's full of souls because mm. they don't weigh anything. Yeah, I like that where he talks about how the horse. You know, the rider doesn't weigh that much. And, the and he treats Wayne less kinder than most men. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he doesn't get named in this book, mm. but um, in, in Mort, we find out his horse is called Binky. And it's <laughs> quite, it, but he's also quite like, he's described quite differently, the horse mm. in this book, because he's got like nostrils of flame and, and red eyes. And red eyes. Whereas Binky's just a normal, but very lovely and slightly super powerful white horse. Mm. Um, but yeah, death, he's, he's going to get them. And then later on, he's like, nah, giving it up. 
when fate turns up and he's sharpening his scythe yeah. and fate's like you will get these guys and he's like mm, yeah i was going to but mm, that's fine everybody get everyone in the end it doesn't matter i don't need to chase them yeah. and you're like wow that's you, that for an immortal entity you that's that's quite a rapid period of change there over the course of less than six months um I do like the description of the two characters that mentioned the grin is Rincewind, I believe, and then fate and death has to repeat it twice that I just can't help it. <laughs> this is just how I am. Yeah, because yeah, I'm a skull. Like. Yeah, I'm a skull. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was cute. Um, but yeah, he's very different. And then at the end of the book, he's not even there because he tells fate like, oh, I'm kind of busy today. Yeah. Like there's a, I have there's a, a plague. plague. I've got yeah. to You've got to show streets. up for wizards, though. Like, it's like that's the thing. The, that's the deal. Yeah. yeah. And this is the only time... Oh, well, he does send Mort, but then it's That's sort for of, a reason. But then it's like death has come in person. It's just that death is being... The, the, He's handed the, over the, the part of death is being played by <laughs> Mort today. So um, when when uh, the, there's a witch and a wizard and a few other people who need to be collected in person. So, it's yeah, it's a bit different and a bit weird. Um, and his personality is certainly not the death that we know. And I think it's just one of those things where, again, Pratchett knew what he wanted to do, which was play with that character mm. of death, go with that Grim Reaper idea, but then make him a bit funny Twist and a it, bit yeah. different. But then he's decided that actually, as a, once he gets to Mort, he's like, no, I want to go in a different direction with how death works. Mm. I'm glad he did. Like, I'm glad he didn't just sort of stick to his guns, be like, oh, well, I've written him like this, so mm. I have to do it. Yeah. And he's very free with that. Like there's lots of, I mean, like with anything that lasts for a long time, like there's lots of little continuity things and, and stuff where he's, he just, he always changes his mind to write what he thinks would be best at the mm. time. And he doesn't worry too much about those continuity things. Like he'll often put little nods to things that have happened, but he doesn't really worry about it. And I think that's, that's the best way to do it. And, he, and particularly when you're writing a series of novels and you're trying to make each one fairly standalone, it's not like one ongoing storyline. Um, I, you know, I think that's the best decision. And, yeah. and I think that this is where you notice it the most, the changes he's made from the really early stuff. So Pratchett, I don't think, went back very much and changed and did revisions to his books. Did no. He? no. No, yeah. Uh, but he was quite, he's, he himself was quite down on, on the first couple of books. Like he's in interviews, he's one of the first people to say, I don't think you should start with those. Like mm. that's when someone's still learning to write. And again, I dispute that. I don't think so. I think they're very well written, but just very much written with a different goal yeah, and a different exactly. style in mind. I think that's that's the thing I sense, and only from hearing other people's discussion on the books, the the books um, following it, it. I don't think they're bad books. I just don't think that's what he eventually ended up writing or wanting to write. Mm. Basically, repeating what you said. But yeah, I, I can, and maybe he did learn how to write specific characters in a in a in a way that he wanted. Maybe not nailing them down quite so much, like mm. you mentioned death, but. Yeah, maybe also changing Rincewind to a character that you didn't enjoy very much, Liz. Yeah, so death got better and Rincewind got worse. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Although, again, I'm very much looking forward to revisiting those later Rincewind books mm. to see if I still feel that. But by worse, I mean, like, I still feel like he followed the arc that was set up in these books. Mm, yeah. So, like, as in, like, the it's what would have happened Frodo. to the person. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's been pointed in that direction. And, in fact, particularly what happens in The Light Fantastic. Like, I think I think there's, like, because that's such a, that's like an apocalyptic storyline, like, much more so than this book, which, and this is another thing that reminded me of Douglas Adams when I was reading it, is mm. it's, very, it's a, like a collection of stuff that happens for comedic effect rather than really one 
cohesive ongoing story. Yeah. Um, Cause he just sort of sends them to different places where he thinks this will be a fun story that I want to tell. Yeah. This is a style of book that I want to parody. And it, and that's very much what Adams does in the hitchhikers. Like a pastiche of really great stuff. Yeah. Particularly yeah. in the early hitchhikers books, mm. you know, it's like, I want to do a thing about bureaucracy. So they get, you know, they hitch a ride with these bureaucratic aliens. And now I want to do a thing about how ridiculous opulence is. So let's tell a story about a planet that made other planets and let's go to a restaurant at the end of the universe. And, but it's all serving the gag rather mm. than the gag serving yep. a story. And I, would, I think there's an element to that in this. I'd argue that this is kind of like a rudimentary version of Witches Abroad, though. Like it is, mm. it's the tourism story. It's the series of misadventures in, in mysterious lands. Um, it's just there's more of a plot in Witches Abroad. Yeah. But it's very similar. Like if you got to the skeleton of it, I think they'd be quite similar. Yeah, that's that's yeah, I'd agree with that. But I absolutely there's more of a plot in Witches Abroad. I mean the 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 travelogue part, like we discussed in the Witches Abroad episode, feels very much like a bit of an aside to the plot, and then you kind of get back to the plot. Um and as you get closer to the main plot part of the book, it starts to sort of hook back into mm. it. Hmm. Yeah. Um But now Scrofula. <laughs> oh yeah, because it's not death yes. waiting for Rincewind on the rim, is it? Yeah, it's, it's Scrofula, like a a weird spin-off of TB, which <laughs> why, I don't understand why it's called a demon, first of all, why it's its own thing. Like, famine and pestilence are things that I sometimes feel in, but why is Scrofula, like, got its own, like... Well, some, I think it's just the demon's name. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe all demons are named after particular. But he's also he say no one dies of scrofula though. Like, isn't that something he says? Yeah, he does. No one dies of scrofula. I've got rights. I'm a wizard. But he also, I mean, scrofula himself has a very mort esque moment because he he sort of goes, "I'm making rather a mess of this, aren't I?" (laughs) Um, And it's more like he's just he's just doing a mate a favor. Although, why death is a Mates, mate, demons yeah. is, is anybody's guess. I is mean, there a hierarchy going on here? Well, is he that... hasn't really established a sort of cosmology of yeah. how this stuff works. And even in the later books, he doesn't really go into that much detail. There's one book that goes to hell and has demons in a major way, mm. which is Eric. And that's pretty much it. It's, I mean, Scrofula, I think if the Discord is like our world, it's really not around that much. So he's probably just got some time. Mm. So he just fills in. It's like the substitute guy. Or he's looking, or he's like... A temp, so he's just <laughs> he's trying to rise the corporate ladder. He's trying to he's trying to get up there. He's, yeah. he's an agency, that's why he's worried about like messing it up. He's like, oh, it's like the first job I've been offered in like a couple of months. I really need to make a good impression. Yeah. Maybe he wants to get years. to be a disease that actually kills people. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it could mm. be. Ah, oh. oh, scrofula. It's anyway, nasty. scrofula doesn't take him either because Rincewind falls off the edge. Hmm? Uh, which is the end of the book. Bit of I a mean, cliffhanger, hmm? one might say. Well, hmm? yeah. Um, although, I, no, I don't know if this is still the same in your edition, but mine has two bits where it says the end. Yeah, yes. mine has that too. Yeah, because there's the bit where the um, the luggage. the ship goes over the edge, edge and the luggage follows it and then it says the end. The and end. then Rincewind wakes up because he's no longer attached to the ship. Mm-hmm. He was sitting on top of it and now he's hanging on to the edge. And he can see the ship far below him. Um yeah, I actually don't remember how that's resolved. It'd be interesting when we get around to reading The Light Fantastic, mm. um, which which we will eventually. Uh, eventually. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. I've got more to say about that. Um, but I think that, that brings us to the end of the book. I mean, are there any favorite bits, any, any sort of general observations we want to make that we haven't covered? I feel like we've covered quite a lot of ground already. Yeah. I, I do want to say again that I really enjoyed this, and I, I kind of thought I would like it, but I liked uh, like because I've it's, I've always been a bit fond of it. But I thought you know how much of that is nostalgia because it was yeah. my first one and yep. I read it when I was very young. I but that, actually, yeah. I really dug it a lot. 
um, for all its differences from the, the, the sort of the major, the rest of Pratchett, I just really liked it. I think it was a good recommendation for me as well. I think particularly to my tastes. For me, it was the greatest hits of Sword and Sorcery, at least for the majority of the way through. And then the last bit was a, a different genre almost for me. Yeah. Um, and it was in the way of a satire that didn't, it didn't deal with the source material. It didn't uh, insult it in one sense. It's a loving um, homage and it and it certainly does, you know, poke fun, but in a respectful way. And that's the kind of satire that I like. I think mm. a lot of the time, modern authors, when they go back and they do anything specifically with sword and sorcery, because it's a very easy genre to to like be like, oh, you. But I think he does it in a way that's, you know, is mm. really good. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I've been dreading reading this one to the whole time we've been doing the podcast. And I was pleasantly surprised to enjoy reading it. Mm. And so I'm less dreading the life of death. I mean, I did have the thing where I opened it up to that giant foot and I went, oh, and I put it away for a week and then I came back. Because <laughs> <laughs> I found I did find that footnote exceptionally tedious. I mean, it set up a lot of important stuff, but it was really yeah. grueling to get through. It's like trying to read like a really tough part of a textbook and you're like, I yeah. need to understand this. It's really important and I want to know it, but it was just really... It says I a grueling. lot of stuff, not connected to the rest of the story well, I mean, and really early on like footnote you know but yeah early on so you haven't sort of like built enough affection for the yes exactly the narrative yeah. to allow for like an intrusion such as yep. this yeah i guess that's true i mean i loved it and i remember loving it back then because i was like fascinated with the idea of how would this world work and i think that it's interesting that pratchett goes out of his way to explain it when say you know george rr R. martin has never explained what the deal is with the seasons in the world of Westeros. But he also doesn't understand the distance between places either. So he doesn't. <laughs> but he swears, uh, he is on record as saying there is uh, an, in, there's a, there's a fiction, there's a narrative Internal reason for it. Yeah. And uh, it will be explained in the last book, but I'm not telling you what it is now. And you're like, you're just going to mm, make some made up. it up yet. Have it's you? a bit of a shrug response. Yeah. But yeah. I think I did really like, um, was very like arrogant, but it's the quote it's on, in my book, page 23. So the fire and its subsequent flood, which destroyed everything left that was not flammable and added a particularly noisome flux to the survivors' problems, did not mark its end. So I very much enjoyed my cameo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and is, it, is it related to the river at all? Yes, no, yes sort of. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, so that's a good one for you. Yeah, particularly noisome. We, oh, no, nice. That's nice. Um, I am... Um, uh, I enjoyed the fact that uh, w- when we made moving pictures, mm. I was amazed that the phrase "it's not a thing" was in there, and I was sure that it predated its use in popular culture elsewhere. And similarly, in this book, on um, in the second section or towards the end of the first one, um, on it's in the second section when Two Flower is in the temple, uh, or and the um, the the demon in the picture box is very nervous. Um, there's this bit. I don't like it, said the picture imp from his box around Two Flower's neck. Why not? inquired Two Flower. It's weird. But you're a demon. Demons can't call things weird. I mean, what's weird to a demon? Oh, you know, said the demon cautiously, glancing around nervously and shifting from claw to claw. Things. (laughs) Stuff. (laughs) Things, stuff. This this book's from 1983. Like, that got to predate it from, certainly from the internet (laughs) meme era. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Oh, 
I really enjoyed when the dryad is sort of being like, you're not a proper wizard, and the conversation they have. She's like, I should have realized that you weren't a, prop- a real wizard when I saw you didn't have a staff. Lost it in a fire, lied Rincewind automatically. No hat with magic sigils embroidered on it, it blew off. No familiar, it died. Look, thanks for rescuing me. He's <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> got an excuse for everything. I do like that that's a consistent part of his character. He's like, I am a wizard. I don't have such a narrow idea of what a wizard is. But it died, all right? <laughs> right up until the point that he doesn't as well, where he says, I'm not that... I'm not that much of a wizard. It's interesting because we we never meet that. I mean, until we get the faculty of Unseen University, yeah. we never meet that many wizards. But all the ones we meet up until we have the faculty <laughs> are a bit of fraught. Though they're all yeah, they're all a bit useless. Because yeah. there's Rincewind, there's um, uh, Cutwell in Mort who can do magic but just isn't very good at it. Uh, he's more better at understanding magic than casting spells. And then there's um, there's Vincent in um, Victor Tugelbend mm. in Moving Pictures mm. who. He's hmm. really not. He's only there because he's on a scholarship, and he he understands magic very, very well. But he doesn't do any because he's like, I don't really want to be a wizard. I'm just here for the sweet life of being a perpetual student. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was that was. The Krull wizards seem like they're a bit more competent, but like it seems like their magic is different. Yeah, like it's more science magic. Yeah, well, the spells that they cast seem to follow some of the same rules. But then again, this book is full of rules of magic that then Pratchett's like, oh, they get in the way of the story. Forget them. And the shrugs mm. moves on. You know, like he yeah. had fun with them in this book. And then he's like, I don't need him anymore. Forget mm. it. And and I think that was, you know, that was a good call. There's a particular line of description I think really caught me. Uh, it was it was the first thing. So this is one of the few um, lines where I could see it like a direct correlation to something that I'd read in the past. But, you know, such a good twist and humorous twist. So it was um, a description of her own. Um, the wide chest, the neck like a tree trunk, the surprisingly small head under its wild thatch of black hair, looking like a tomato on a coffin. <laughs> he could put a name to the creeping figure, and that name was Sharon the Barbarian. It uh, was so good. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> that was fantastic. Um, oh, there's there's one other bit I want to read. I just really enjoyed this gag from near the end of the book when when they're being captured and they're being it's being explained to them that they're going to be sacrificed. Mm. What do you want to sacrifice us for? Asked Two Flower. You hardly know us. <laughs> That's rather the point, isn't mm. it? It's not very good manners to sacrifice a friend. <laughs> like, that makes absolute so good, sense. Yeah. I'm like, but it's also but, not a sacrifice. Yeah, true. That is true. That is. I like where you went with that. <laughs> it might be time for some questions from the listeners, Liz. And we've covered a bit of it um, either when we've flagged it specifically or we've covered it in the conversation in general. I'm going to shorten this question from Des, which is what characters or places would you like to have seen again? Like, there's characters who were mentioned in this that we didn't see ever again. Um, look, I was really quite fond of Tethys. I think if he'd come back... I mean, he does come back. He's in, like, Fantastic, the direct sequel to this book. But I don't remember how much of it he's in. And I, I would have liked to see him again. Yeah. And Two Flower more often. Like, we mm. only see... We do see him again, but not until interesting times. And then that's kind of the only other time we see him. And I really liked him as a character. And coming off that question, there's one from Ilbion, which is what book or region that we don't know would you like to see two flower visiting again oh as in like he's being a tourist on the disc and he goes to ankmore pork and then a couple of other places but um send him to australia yeah that would be amazing (laughs) two flower in 4x the uh the lost there's there's, so there's a book (laughs) on the last continent (laughs) and uh and there's a there's there's another continent on the disc that nobody really has explored and it and it is a complete piss take of Australia and, it, and the continent is called XXXX because nobody knows what it's called. Yeah. That's just how it's marked on the maps. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a good one that I think maybe is good for Joel. Mm. Um, it's from, I'm sorry, it's Q-I-X-E-D-E. 
So while this was my first Discworld book and pulled me in, is it really the best book to start with? So I feel like Ben's and my opinion on this is already quite established because we discussed that with how we chose to start the podcast, but this was your first one. It's it's incredibly competent as a as like a fun read. So I think if you go in with no understanding of the Discworld, it's actually a lot of fun. But again, maybe a little bit biased. I have all this, you know, collected protocols from enjoying sword and sorcery and fantasy in general. So maybe that enhanced that. So if you didn't have that, don't know. Yeah. But I mean, if you enjoy that kind of stuff, then Yeah. yeah and, I, and I think there's so much Pratchett and there's so many things that have a different angle that there's lots of ways in. I think I don't mm. think even the two that we suggested and, and and started our podcast with are the only or best entries into the series. Like there's other places you could start. And in fact, we've been working on an article that we want to post on the website about that. And maybe this is a good time to finally post that. Not so much about places to start, but more sort of about how you can approach reading them because it is daunting to get into a series of 41 novels. Uh, but it's important to remember most of them pretty much standalone. And there are sub-series within that. So, yeah, I think there's lots of places to start. But this one worked for me and it worked for you, Joel. Yeah, and I know absolutely. it's worked for some of our listeners because they've they've mentioned that. Although someone did ask, did anyone continue reading after reading this? <laughs> yes, hello, it was me. <laughs> uh, and hopefully we'll be Joel as well. Yes, absolutely. And some previous guests as well. I think Steph Convery had started at the beginning and made yes. her way through. Yep. All right, so here's another one. And I think I know what you both are going to answer. Should I actually read any of the high fantasy this book spoofs? Um, I'll I'll let you take this one first. Spoilers, yes. Yeah, I'm way too excited about this question too. I'm like, cool, I get to talk about weird sword sorcery that no one cares about and probably rightly should not care about. Um, Yes, absolutely. There's some great source material that I think still has a good amount of carryover today. Like Elric is great. Michael Moorcock is one of the authors that transitions very well into the modern era. So maybe Mm. not Robert E. Howard and, you know, Wagner, um, Carl Edward Wagner. But I'd say Moorcock is one of the one of the better ones. I think and Lieber's, Fritz Leiber as well, yeah, for yeah, sure. Leiber. I keep saying Lieber. It's Leiber, isn't yeah. it? Um, I, it depends on if you love it or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that was good. Oof. I like that I one. Like uh, that was It's our first uh, intra-language pun, I yeah. believe. Very good. Oh, you uh, should hear my Cantonese puns. <laughs> oh. And I would say read one or two of the Lovecraft stories. But yep. if you're interested in that kind of eldritch horror, because he did invent a whole genre he did. of cosmic yeah. horror. And it is an interesting genre. But I really think a lot of the stories are not that great. And my favorite ones are the ones he wrote towards the end. My absolute favorite, yes. if you're going to read just one, is um, The Shadow Out of Time. Yeah. Um, but also The Color Out of Space, which is about a weird color that can't be described. But hmm. I, at one point, I think also is described as a kind of weird um, greenish purple. Yeah. Uh, is also an interesting one. Or maybe Octarine. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to acknowledge that George Stevenson has a good question that we've covered across the course of the thing, which is what do we think the various parts of spoofing? We've also covered Tracy Reddington's question about how death compares. And we've also covered Eshu and Sneeze's question about continuing on from the color of magic. And that brings us to the end. Well, uh, one wasn't more question yeah. uh, oh. for me this time, <gasps> and that's to you, Liz. You got to tweet uh, it, no. <laughs> <laughs> is the next recommendation. Ooh, yeah, that's right. The pressure's on. I think that Pratchett recommendations we've talked about are very personal and it depends on the reader themselves, which is why there's so many different entry points. I think since you enjoyed this one, I would probably just go chronological. Like I would just go Mm -hmm. through it all in order because then you can see how the world unfolds. Mm. Yeah. Especially since you've already started at the beginning and liked it. There you go. Well, I will pick that up then. It works for me. The fantastic. So I think, think yeah, I think it'll work for you too. Because I'll paste them all quite nicely as well so you won't go through like a chunk that you like and Mm. then there's like a chunk you don't. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for coming, Joel. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, it's Thanks been, for the invite. It's been great to have you on. And now, of course, people can hear your voice on your own podcast, The Absolutely. Morning Bell. How do people find it? All right. So it's themorningbell.com.au is the website. You can find us on iTunes. That's probably the best place, easiest place to listen to us. Um, we are pretty much done for the year. So I just recorded the last podcast um, at the Brunswick Street Bookstore for the year. And that'll come out over the period of like the next two, three weeks. And to describe it in a nutshell for the listeners, what, how would you describe the Morning Bell? So the Morning Bell is basically a conversational style podcast, bringing on authors, publishers, agents, people involved in the writing industry and publishing industry uh, to talk about their experiences and to nut it down, basically. So very conversational. We talk about media and then we move on to topic sections. So I think, Ben, you were on and Liz, you were also on. Yeah, we have both been on. We might mm-hmm. even link to our previous episodes of mm-hmm. Morning Bell in our show notes. Um, and to also uh, one of the people behind Speculate, the Melbourne Speculative Fiction Festival, which started this year, yep. earlier this year, which is coming back to Melbourne in 2019 in March. It is. It's very exciting. So March 15th and 16th are the dates of Speculate and conversations sort of like The Morning Bell, but very much focused around speculative fiction, bringing names in um, that you might not see on the Melbourne circuit very much but also those names that um, maybe don't get a lot of runtime, but have a lot to say and a lot of wisdom. So yeah, absolutely. Check it out. Cool. Well, we'll, uh, we'll link to speculate as well, because it's sure. probably a bit early for news of, of who's going to be on. A little bit. Yeah. The but... newsletter is probably the best place to follow us. We'll have announcements coming out like end of December, January. So right. newsletter. That'll also be linked at the top of the show notes. Um, and look, before we get on to um, talking about what we're going to do next time, you're probably, listeners, wondering when we're going to cover The Light Fantastic. Well, it seems only fair to wait for that book's 35th anniversary of publication. So we'll find out how Rincewind escapes from his cliffhanger in June 2021. Um, so uh, you thought waiting a week for the next episode of The Good Place was bad. But it's oh, going to be fine. it's two weeks because of Thanksgiving. Ah, that's oh. the worst. I can't believe they don't have a special Thanksgiving episode. Yeah. Um, but next time... Um, we're going to do something a little bit, not topical, that's not really accurate, but next year in 2019, Amazon Prime is bringing to our television screens the one and only Good Omens, and we thought we'd get in first, and so in January, our episode will be all about the book, Good Omens. You won't even have to watch the TV series if you listen to our episode. Yeah. No, you'll yeah. know everything that happens. Yeah. yeah, better. Yeah, it'll be better amazing. Uh, and if you want to ask us questions about Good Omens, shoot them in via the hashtag Pratchat15 on social media. Um, if you want to talk about this episode, of course, use the hashtag Pratchat14. And to all of those of you who have been already you know, spreading the word, uh, giving us reviews on iTunes, just tweeting about us, thank you so much. It all helps. Um, if you do listen via the Apple Podcasts app or via iTunes, it does help us if you rate and review the podcast. So please do that if you are enjoying it. Um, and otherwise, just tell people. It's always great to know people are listening. Uh, But until next time, when we come back, please do not fall off the edge of the world or strap yourself into a rocket and fire yourself into the stratosphere to prove that it is just a flat disc. (laughs) Don't do that either. Um, And we will see you next time. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Joel Martin. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast or on the web at pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett14. 
Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.